episode number 51, Glenn Davidson. All right, cut to edge of stage. Great. All right, color frost. Check. One, two, three. Check. Stand by, please. to half. House out. Letting cues one Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theater designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time I have an interview with Toronto-based designer Glenn Davidson. Now, I've known Glenn and worked with him since I started in the business in the early 1990s, and he has shared with me a lot of my formative theater experiences, especially around that old Title Block mainstay, the Blythe Festival. But Glenn was also around for the second wave of alternative theater in the late 80s in Toronto, and he tells me all about his work with Theatre Columbus, now Common Boots Theatre, and the rest of the Poor Alex group, as well as the start of the Toronto Fringe Festival. The show notes are long for this one, so if you are confused by the number of names or shows we are tossing around, please go to thetitleblock.com and see the show notes. Just before we begin, I also wanted to add a clarification of a couple of things Glenn and I discussed. And kind of blanked on. First, both Glenn and I blank at the last name of the inimitable Craig Smith, the head scenic carpenter and resident engineering genius at Young People's Theatre in the 1990s and early 2000s. My apologies, Craig. I actually have no idea if he listens to this, but oh boy, it was a bit embarrassing. As well, there were only three founding companies of the Poor Alex Theatre Group, and Autumn Leaf, while they may have been producing there, were not one of them. Now, I've reached out to Jennifer Bruin from Common Boots for more information about who owned the building, uh, the Poor Alex, and what happened during the transition. So please see the show notes for any clarification of this. I'll update it as more information comes in. And I also wanted to make sure that we do not mistake the Poor Alex Theatre Group with the Poor Alex Theatre. I mean, it seems like a small thing, but the theater and the venue predates the group by about 20 years. Uh, they were the venue, for example, where Air Farce debuted in the late 19, uh, excuse me, late 1960s. So it's been around for a long time. And don't forget to go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast to support the show. I'm currently in Vancouver recording this and eating all of the sushi I can get my hands on so I can bring you some great interviews in the new year. But for now, please listen to the stories and tales told by designer Glenn Davidson as we sat in his living room in Toronto in August of 2018. Glenn Davidson is a set lighting and costume, occasionally occasionally designer, uh, based out of Toronto, originally from, born in Montreal, raised in Ottawa. Uh, Glenn and I have worked together on many shows, and he has worked for over... 30 to 35 years in the business and he joins me now in his home here in toronto welcome to the title block thank you more than 30 years more unfortunately than th- <laughs> it's closer to 40 i didn't want to say the 40 it's word i'm 40, like yeah, it's that's 40. a long time i know <laughs> uh, it's okay so tell me about when you started out you said you were born in montreal yeah i was born in montreal uh in an english enclave uh all english all uh english-speaking people around me i didn't not have any French friends. And my father moved to, got a job uh, teaching at Ottawa U uh, in 1968. And uh, so we all moved to Ottawa. And uh, and I basically, from ele- age of 11 to 22, I went to high school and also university in Ottawa. I had free tuition. 
And so he taught... Phys Ed. Phys Ed, fantastic. Mm -hmm. And what did you take at Ottawa when you went there? Theater. And why that decision? Like, what led you to that Well, um, in high school, I was sort of a typical 70s kid in high school. All I wanted to do was smoke dope and, and, and hang out, you know, and skip as much class as I could and that sort of thing. Um, ex- and, and I took theater because they didn't have an exam. And I didn't, I hated exams or studying anything like that. So I, I took it and it was like a bird course. And, uh, and then I realized, I started working on a show, it was The Skin of Our Teeth, actually. And I was working backstage. I can't even remember now what, just like moving scenery around and stuff like that. And I realized one day that it was six o'clock and I was still at school. And I went, oh, I don't even want to go home. I, like, I'd like to stay here and do this. And it was the first thing in school that I'd ever done where I, I actually wanted to spend time on it more than, than was required. And so because I had free tuition at Ottawa U, it was one of these things, well, it doesn't really matter what you choose because it's free. So you, you don't have to feel like you're you know, wasting the money if it doesn't work out. And Ottawa U had a theater department a a theater program but no design or technical program at all uh so i had i was too shy to be an actor in high school or so i thought and so i thought that well i could do something that's creative because i didn't want to just be a technician you know it had to be important whatever it was it had to be important and therefore it had to be a creative position and so i hit on set design i had actually no idea what a set designer did or what skills were needed or anything. I just thought, yeah, that's, that's, I'll do that. And not lighting was set. Uh, so I went to Ottawa U and they had only acting courses pretty well. <laughs> and uh, so I started doing that and, you know, it's very physical and it's, it's, it's sort of like a training, like a, you know, physical training. And I got into it. I, it was fun. And I changed my focus. Uh, by the time I had graduated from four years of doing that uh, I decided I wanted to be an actor. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, what? Um, sorry, what years were that? Was that so I I graduate. I went to uh, Ottawa U. I graduated in 1980 okay. after four years. And anybody in your cohort there that you worked with afterwards, or was it something you just? Oh yeah, right, yeah. Maristella Roca mm-hmm. uh, is a playwright who is. Uh, we were good friends in in Otto, at Ottawa U. Uh, Michael Stevens, who you will know, but he's uh, still a technician at the NAC. Um, in fact, the guy who taught me lighting, I went to, when I did Stuff Happens at the NAC a couple of years ago, I was on the, you know, I had a big hang, 400 lamps or something, and a big crew. And I heard this voice, and I turned around, and it was Bob Demetrel who taught me. And he's retired, but now he pulls calls at the NAC. <laughs> it was like, I, he didn't recognize me at all, yeah. uh, but it was kind of cool in a way that he was on my crew, and he actually was the guy who gave me Richard Pilbrough's book, right. and he taught me in about a half an hour the McCandless theory, yeah. and basically that was the only formal training I ever had as a lighting designer, yeah. was the half an hour that Bob Demetro spent with me in his office. Right. Nice. Yeah. That's fantastic. So, just copying it ever since. <laughs> yeah. It's always, yeah, well, you know, whatever works, right? Um, and uh, some people could learn from that, actually. Yeah. Like, you should employ that more. Uh-huh. So I saw a show last week that was like that. Um, uh, but uh, it also goes to show that you should never, like, whenever, whatever position you're in, like, things could be reversed or 
power could be reversed or the how you relate to people in the future could always change. You also right? don't know how even a small thing that you do for a student or anything like that can have a huge influence on them, like a small thing. You know, I, I will point to like Sula Page did the same thing for me as a designer. I was working with her as a production manager on Goodnight Desdemona. Yeah. And uh, she she saw some potential in me and she encouraged me. She bought me drafting tools. She And she, for years, would check my drafting because I didn't know how to draft. And she would check it before I sent it in. So, you know, and she took that on on, on her own. And that, that mentoring is, is super important, I think. And I remember I remember for myself, a gentleman named Carl Wiley was the head electrician at the Center in the Square in Kitchener. Uh-huh. And he trained in, uh, I've probably talked about this on the show before, he trained in University of Hawaii. He did his MFA uh-huh. in Hawaii uh-huh. and uh, as a lighting designer and uh, found his way through, you know, life to Kitchener where he designed... Uh, the system, the lighting system for the Humanities Theater, and then that got replicated when they built the the um, center in the center square. In the square in nineteen eighty. Massive thing. Yeah, massive. And uh, he way too big. Oh, it's a giant touring house. <laughs> like yeah, it's like a hundred foot wide pros or fa- something. Yeah, it's Phantom crazy. went there. A hundred ninety yeah. foot grid, yeah. sixty by eighty foot. Can deck. they sell it? Yeah. Oh, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, it's it does a success. Quite, it does quite well. Oh, yeah. yeah, it does quite well. Not maybe not, not as well now as it was in the eighties and nineties. But Phantom played there, and it was like, and Cats, all the big shows. It was big enough to it's like to a have huge regional. It works as a regional, exactly. basically, right? right? Yeah. But he taught me, and that was that was the same thing. Went over over summer, learned basics, and then yeah, he yeah, was a, go he was from a there. Right? For early, yeah. Um, great. So you're at University of Iowa now. Mm. Um, you finished the program for your was a four year program. Yeah, I actually was there five years because I uh, I uh, didn't go to grade thirteen. And at the time, they had something called pre mm-hmm. Uh So you could go to, uh, and I took, uh, so yeah, I, I did a four-year program in five, five years because I, I, you didn't get any credits for the pre U year. You just got prerequisites. That makes sense. That allowed me to take as many theater courses as I wanted because I basically spread out my education over five years instead of four. Um, and I, so I, and I took six courses a year. So I, I, I you know, I took puppetry. I took, you know. <laughs> All the things. That's yeah. great. I, ironically, I didn't take the one half course they had in design. I don't remember why. It was, I think I wanted to do puppetry or something, but anyways, I didn't take it. That's funny. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, you finished Ottawa and mm-hmm. then you leave town again, right? Or yeah. I, I decided by that time I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. Uh, had been cast in um, a small like spear carrier role at the NAC in in Henry V and Mother Courage in Rap, which I to this day remember these productions because they're legendary. Yeah. They were John Wood at his worst, and um, and it was just before he left. And, you should uh, you should elaborate there's on some that. Stories. Oh my God, there are stories. There are stories I hear people tell that I was there for, and people tell these stories, and they've had them wrong. A lot of times. Like there's a famous story about Derek Ralston, who's dead now, unfortunately, lovely, lovely actor who was playing Pistol and playing the chaplain in Mother Courage. And he went after John Wood with an axe, is the story. Wow. But that's not what happened, because okay. I was there. Okay. Yeah. And he was, he, the chaplain has to chop wood, yeah. or he did in this production. And John Wood loved to stop the action from the back of the house. He goes, Stop! And then he'd come out on the stage, taking 20 minutes to get the goddamn stage. And then he'd walk up on the stage and he would literally show the actor what he wanted them to do. You know, the actors hate that, especially like, you know, 
Joan Ornstein, for example, was yeah. playing Mother Courage. Anyway, it was just incredibly... And Derek Ralston was this really sweet... Derek? Yeah, a very, very sweet man. And, 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 very, and it was, he was gay and, 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 and kind of closeted. And he was a very... He was just a very timid person. On stage, he was wonderful. But as a person, he was very timid. And John Wood came up to him and took the hatch. It was a hatchet, not an axe. And he took it out of his hand. And um, he was showing him how to do it and Derek freaked out and grabbed the, the hatchet from him and said ripped it out of his hands and said, don't fucking tell me how to fucking chop fucking wood or something like that right and, and that's it that's what happened right he didn't go at him with an axe it was a hatchet and it was you know he just took it away from him because he had taken it from him in the first place but those were people remember those productions as being particularly awful they were three and a half hours long, two intermissions. We'd watch every intermission. After every intermission, there'd be fewer and fewer people in the house. Oh, it's just... And we would do them in rap. So Henry and Mother in rap, eight shows a week. Yeah, three hours, three and a half hours for Henry, three hours and 15 for Mother. That is... That sounds like a nightmare. Oh, I get so much work. And, oh, yeah. And then Derek Ralston, right. the guy who played the chaplain, went to a bar. It, he got beaten so badly that he came back to the show and he was coughing up blood because he'd been kicked. And, and he, event, he, he never came back to the show and he died within, I don't know, three or four months as a result. So we were doing Henry and Mother. This is a very long story, Michael. No. Okay, we were doing Henry and Mother in rep in the theater. In the studio, they were doing Joe Orton's Lute, okay, which had an 8.30 start, an 8 o'clock start for Henry and Mother. But we could only, we couldn't, they couldn't do performances of Lute when we were doing Mother because Ben Campbell and a number of other actors, but Ben in particular, was in Lute. And he was also in Mother Courage. So, and it was a, it was a, it was a company, right? So they, they had scheduled it in such a way that there were only so many performances of loot. And, and, but they also had figured out, so already, you know, Edward Atienza, do you remember Edward Atienza? He was a wonderful, wonderful actor. He's dead now, but he's a wonderful actor. He was from Halifax. He was, this was already in the gig, right? right. He was the old man in Lute. Okay. So Lute could play simultaneously with Henry right. because Ben wasn't in Henry. Right. And I, f- I think Charlie Fletcher too, like the, the couple of actors, but mainly it was Ben. Yeah. So, but <laughs> for Henry, because it had an eight o'clock curtain, and Lute had an 8.30, Edward Atienza would come out and do the prologue. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the very dear And he would do that as the Duke of Cornwall or wherever it is. I don't know who it is. And then he would go off, change into the old man, do Lute, which was only an hour and a half long. And then he would come back. He'd change back into the Duke of Cornwall or whoever it is, and he would give the epilogue. It was insane. So when, so this was already happening, okay? So he was already doing this. 
And it was a great gig for him because he didn't have to work when we were doing Mother. So he was only doing four, he was doing eight shows a week, but he was really doing them two shows at a time, right? So then when, when, when uh, Derek had to leave the show, first they put in ASM, poor fucker, in full makeup and costume, his pistol with a book, doing Shakespeare. I mean, just, ugh. and then they, they got, they, well, we got Teddy, he's great, he can play the chaplain. Well, so then, because Lute never played when Mother played. Oh, right, right. So they put him into the chaplain in one rehearsal. Right. And because he was a chaplain, he could carry a Bible. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, but he sang songs. Like, it's a Brecht. It's, right. He has solos, right? Yeah. Like, I've never seen a pro like that. Like, the guy walked in after one rehearsal and did a three-and-a-half-hour-long production while he was doing two other shows. So on a, a matinee day, he would literally do three shows. Wow. How did Equity let him let them get he away with that? He made an enormous amount of money. Yes, sir. Because it was like an A house. Yeah, sure. Wow. That's a crazy story. I know. <laughs> the John Wood years at NEC are nuts. Oh, he was insane. I did I did a show with him at the Festival, in the Cl- Festival of Classics out in the park in Oakville. Oh, were you on that? that? Bonnie did that. No, she couldn't have, but she did Festival of Classics. Yes. Right. Yeah, we all did Festival yeah, of Classics. Yeah. Um, yes. And he was, we did uh, Paracles. That didn't last long, that company, did it? The, three or four years or something? Uh, like three or four years. Yeah. I think the insects and the water <laughs> chased everyone away because yeah. it got very buggy because it was right on the lake. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's interesting. So uh, NEC, uh, Spirit Carrier. Yeah. So then, then, then I decided to move to Toronto and be an actor. Right. right? And uh, I did. Um, I came here, I had an audition with the CBC. I got a little thing on a CBC, like, um, one of those historical docudramas, you know, about Nelly McClung. And I got to be a rabble rouser who said racist things out of the, (laughs) um, and, uh, and then, you know, I got, I got a couple, I got a role in, um, uh, at the theater center on the Danforth. Okay, which is used is music hall now, I think, um, where all those companies started, like uh, Autumn Angel, uh, I mean, a Necessary Angel, an Autumn Leaf, uh, Tom Sokolowski's uh, company, um, Buddies, because uh, uh, Sky was the artistic director, and there's a fourth company that I'm forgetting. There were four companies. Anyways, I got cast in a Sky Gilbert thing called the Piano of Death. <laughs> And uh, uh, I did a really bizarre, bizarre, bizarre performance in that show. And uh, can we just step back for a second? The music hall, I did not know this, was the music hall in Danforth. Was the theater center. Was the theater center. This is like the third, like the going back. The first theater center. Right. But then it it moved down to. Oh, it's been many places. So it was on Lippincott. You probably don't remember it being on Lippincott. No, you're kidding. No, it was on. But I think between the. I think it went from, I have a feeling it went from the Danforth to Queen Street. Okay. Like where Wicked ended up, the sex club. Oh, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the, that's the old Legion building. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Sergeant yeah, yeah. Trowels. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Um, uh, and then I think it went to Lippincott briefly, oh, okay. uh, like for maybe a year or two. And then it went to Dovercourt. Right. I think. 
So Lippincott was Queen after Queen Street. I think okay. so. That makes sense. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I think that makes but sense. the music hall. Okay. Interesting. And Autumn Leaf was up there too. Yeah. And Buddies. Yeah. Before they moved down to the Actors Lab area, whatever the hell that was. Oh, uh, down on George Street. Yeah, on George Street. Yeah, yeah, the pinkest theater in Toronto. That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Tell me you still have video of your CBC no. work. Oh. I, I, I don't think I ever did. Oh, you're okay. okay. I don't think I ever did. Oh. I don't remember it. It was terrible. I, 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 I was literally, I think you could barely see me. You could mainly hear me. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. And there were all these other guys around me that were uh, on camera, SOCs. Do you know what an SOC is? Silent on camera. Oh, yeah. So, uh, and we were in a crowd. And I was, you know, I, was, I had lines, which was, hey, Pocahontas and all these sort of things. You know, it's just horrible things I had to say. But I had buddies around me who were silent on camera, extras. So I was kind of going to get them all to, and they all started getting into it, and they're actors, right? They all started going, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so the guy comes over and goes, okay, which one of you is the guy with the line? And it was me. And they said, yeah, you talk. The rest of you shut the fuck up, right? Because <laughs> I'd have to pay them, right? That's right. We're not only paying you guys to show up and be a body. <laughs> exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. All right, so the Sky Show happens. So, so yeah, I mean, I, and what happened eventually was, oh, and then I did this... <laughs> Oh my God. I did a production of um, uh, the Oristaya, oh, yeah. where I played Orestes. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh, Mary Stella Roca had written this adaptation of the thing. And we did it, you know, the southeast corner of Spadina and Queen yeah. with a couple of the building with a couple on it. Yeah, yeah. That and the third floor. Some guy's apartment. We we did, and I th- I feel like it was part of some kind of festival. I don't think it was a fringe, because it hadn't started yet. It was some kind of festival, right. something. Anyway, you could put about twelve people in, right. and we did this ridiculous. I don't I can't remember it except that I suspect it was terrible, <laughs> and um, uh, so I did that. And at the time, I had just um, I just gotten married. And my 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 wife at the time, this is not Bonnie, this is my first wife, um, was not a theater person. And I was going to a lot of rehearsals. And she was just dreadfully jealous. And she was convinced I was having an affair with the actress playing Electra. Trust me, I wasn't. But um, she was convinced that I was and that and, and, and eventually I actually quit acting because it was causing too much um stress in my house yeah. Yeah. because I, just, I had technical skills so i decided i would i would uh pursue those instead right. i know that feeling i became well i was uh, i i the year that i turned down stratford this is the year that i turned down stratford <laughs> in 2002 or something 2001 2002 uh well, at least you've been able to turn them down darling that's a good point. It was in the, I've it never was, had to turn. I've never had to turn them down, or Shaw, or was, anyone yeah, like that. So. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, that was the year that I broke up with my now ex-husband because it was too much stress to manage the career, and and again, he wasn't in theater either. Yeah, and they so don't understand. It's just a no, yeah. They no. just don't get it. And or I, some people do, but a lot of people it's, do it's not. A, it's yeah. a challenge. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So I understand it. So. It, it uh, sort of drove you into technical theater? Well, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> um, I part, partly I wanted something that would pay me more regularly. Um, 
partly I was not thrilled with the material that I was being asked to audition for. I went, oh, and it's funny because when I, when I eventually became, I didn't go directly into designing from that. I became a technician at Harborfront. So I worked at Harborfront for a number of years, uh, just basically doing AV. Um, and then I had a kid and then I got a job at U of T. And so basically that's what happened. I was working at Harborfront and Julie Bishop, who was a fellow student of mine at Ottawa U, she was one of the art co-artistic directors of Theatre Columbus with with Jennifer, I mean with uh, Martha and Leah. Uh, they had started out with Martha and Leah and then Julie joined them. Right. So this is Leah Cherniak. Leah Cherniak, Martha, Martha Ross, Ross yeah. and Julie Bishop. Right. Uh, who's now Julie Owens. Her mate, she's married. Um, and we were friends from school and she had been one of those perennial students. So when we'd been students together at Ottawa U, but she'd gone back to school. I still don't know why, but she went back to school in Toronto and we, I don't know, somehow we hooked up. Like we, 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 we found, we re-encountered one another and, uh, and she was going to U of T in the undergrad program. And one day I was working at Harborfront. She phoned me up and she said, how much money do you make? And I said, $16,000 a year. And she said, how'd you like to make 30? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, and you'd have your summers free. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and um, U of T had this undergrad program, which Leah had come out of actually, and Daniel Brooks and uh, other people, but those are the ones I can think of. Don McKellar came out of there. Uh, Tracy Wright came out of there. Uh, um, you know, Andrea Lundy came out of there yeah. eventually. You know. That's a huge part of the Canadian, like of oh. Toronto theater in the oh. 1980s. Like oh. that's the start of essentially. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Right. Um, uh, Cause not just them, uh, Jim Milan. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he went there, but he had associations there and he rented that space and used it a lot yeah. in early days with crows. Right. Um, anyway, um, Sorry, I lost my little train there. Where was I? Um, you reconnected with... Oh, yeah, Julie. So she phoned me up and said, do you want this job? And um, there was the TD of the undergrad theater program at U of T, and they had a guy there who'd been there for a long time. And I gather he'd been there too long. And he had a, he'd carved himself a sweet deal, man. Sure. Like, he was, he was on, officially on call from May 1st to August 15th okay. and getting a full salary yeah. on call. But nothing no, the space wasn't rented or anything. It was just empty. It was supposed to be for maintenance. But when I went in there, it was quite obvious. The guy had never maintained anything in his life. I mean, it had 12 dimmers. Yeah. When I went in there, there were 12 dimmers and 35 lights. Right. right. When I left, we had, um, uh, 96 dimmers. Right. And uh, I don't know, 80 lights or something like that. And, and you know what? I was just back there last year. I designed in there last year at the UC Playhouse, which is now the Helen Gardner Phelan Playhouse. And uh, the same gear is still there. <laughs> so, <laughs> Isn't that the way? Oh, That's you know hilarious. what's really weird is when you go into a place that you worked in, like you worked, I worked there for seven years. And... So I knew every inch of the place. Sure. I literally every inch. I crawled into the attic and all that sort of stuff. And when you go in and there's certain things that are exactly the same, yeah. it's weird. Yes. It's a weird feeling. Because yeah. Nick was born while I worked there, and he's 35. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, 
Um, so when I started working there, um, uh, they wanted somebody young who would really relate to the students, I think. And, and I did. I was, I was only 27 or 28 years old. Um, and I didn't really have great skills, but I, enough, you know. And um, they were really prolific uh, as a department. They had a lot of students who would do a lot of self-directed work. And, um, but they had no design or th technical theater program at all. So everything was done just kind of ad hoc, and it was a real hippie thing, like beforehand, right? Everybody was, you know, it was pretty loosey-goosey. Um, and I came in, and they, they, want, they had no one to light their shows. They had no one to design their sets. And I just started doing it for fun. Yeah. I, was, I wasn't being paid to do it. I just thought it was fun. Yeah. Um, and then Julie, who'd got me the job, graduated and was working with Theatre Columbus, who were just starting out. They'd done one show, I think. Sorry, what year was this? I think it's around 85. Yeah. I think it's about 85, yeah. somewhere around there. 85 or 86. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they were doing a show called Melancholia, mm -hmm. which is about the fallen angel, you know, based on the Durer engraving of the fallen angel. Yeah, so yeah. And um, again, like most Theatre Columbus shows at the time, they had a title yeah. and no script. Right. Um, just an idea to start clown improvisation from and an incredible cast michael simpson and martha ross and and um uh ollie dennis and 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 uh, just uh, andy massingham i mean they're just like really great clowns like some really great clowns um and she phoned anyways julie phoned me up one day and said uh again this, she does this to me all the time she did with the job um you know, what are you doing? And I said, uh, I'm working at the job you got me. And uh, uh, said, well, you build stuff, right? And I went, yeah, kind of, you know, like I know how to use a saw and a hammer, kind of. And she said, well, we have a, we're doing this show and our set designers had a nervous breakdown and uh, we want you to do it. And I went, I had no idea like what it meant at all. So I just went, sure, cool. And I had just split up with my first wife and I had moved into a bachelor apartment just down here yeah. on, um, on, um, doesn't matter. And, uh, and I literally had a bed sit and I had no tools, uh, like to, I had no idea. I didn't have a cut mat. I didn't have like, you know, so I went and got an exacto blade and some balsa wood and I literally with a glue gun on my hands and knees on the carpet yeah. of my my bachelor, I built this model. Yeah. I didn't know how to work with scale or anything like that. I learned I learned it, but I basically was teaching myself scale. I was using like a normal ruler, yeah. <laughs> figuring it out, you know. And I built this thing, and 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 then eventually that's what we we did. That's what we used, and it was sort of based on the original design. But it had never been fleshed out. Right. It was just sort of some sketches and stuff like that. And uh, I had to make it. I'm a very practical person. Sure. So it was all about how big is it? How long is it? Where does it fit? How are we going to build this? And all that sort of thing. So that was my, that was, that, well, that's why they brought me on. was yeah. because I could know how to build it. Yeah, sure. yeah. And then Theatre Columbus, I sort of was able to hitch my wagon to their star a bit. Yeah. 
they were really on the upswing. They were the darlings of the critics, and and then for, for good reason. I mean, look at the people. I mean, God, it's just a who's who of basically it's salt pepper. And when you look at it, it's 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 uh, many of the people that ended up being the, the bedrock of Soul Pepper's yeah. company. Because those same people did the Three Sisters in Banff, which is what Soul Pepper came out of, right? I was a production manager on that, actually. Um, anyway, so uh, they were a fledgling company. They started to use me all the time. So I got to cut my teeth with that company, which is a highly imaginative company and kind of weird in that they didn't have scripts. Yeah. So a lot of times, I licking, uh, cooking with Columbus, for example, I literally had that title. That was it. And we had to build the set. We had to design and build a set. How, um, I got that one off Bugs Bunny. That was the inspiration was a Bugs Bunny. I was watching Saturday morning cartoons with Nick, who was like a little kid. Yeah. And I, there was a kitchen with the swinging, you know, those yeah, cafe yeah. doors that go in and out with the round porthole windows in oh, them. Yeah, sure. and, and there was a kind of comic routine where people kept going. And I went, there you go. Yeah. And that's what I did. I basically stole a Bugs Bunny a cartoon. Well, we take time. we take inspiration for anywhere, right? That yeah. makes a total sense. For sure. Um, yeah, how what was the process of recording? Like, would they then do a draft script after things were up and in tech, or was like how did uh, they write this stuff down? Yeah. Like, they, well, they no, because they, what they would do is they would record during rehearsal. You, you, uh, I I may not be perfectly accurate okay. with some of this, but. Sure. But as one of my understanding is, they would record or annotate, or not annotate, um, um, transcribe uh, during rehearsal, uh, and so that they could go back. But it was mostly intention and mm -hmm. the idea more than the specifics of what they said. Uh, and a lot of the stuff was based on physical latsies. A latsy? Uh, a latsy is. A, I have no idea what a latsy is. Oh, a latsy is. A, so any of the, these. Uh, people that were trained at Lecoq or any of these kind of schools, this thing called a Latsy, which is, again, I'm, I'm not an actor. I shouldn't probably bastardize this. By, but anyway, it's it's like you do something and then you do it again and again and again. It's about repetition and it's about f pushing past the point where it becomes funny. Pushing past the point where it becomes, to, to where it becomes funny. and 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 if you keep going with it, you have to learn when you can roll it and how many times you can keep rolling it. Because if you can keep rolling it, you'll have people peeing their pants and, and, and they can't stop because it just gets so funny. But you have to know when to stop. And that is, that's really key. That's Those interesting. Instincts. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's so they based a lot of their stuff on just a simple physical movement or, um, you know, like a physical action that they would then develop and, and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. You see that a lot. And then over time, sorry. Yep. And then over time they'd have, they'd piece together a narrative. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, typically, <coughs> it was like around a theme. Okay. Uh, so the anger in Ernest and Ernestine yeah. is about anger in relationships. Right. Because it's not called the love, yeah. called the anger in Ernest and Ernestine. Yeah. And it, it's about really a uni very universal you know, I mean, they talk, in one point they talk about, you always hurt the one you love. You know, they use that lyric from that song. And they talk about it. They say, yeah, what is with that lyric? You know, like, why do you hurt the person you love? And but essentially that is what the original I question was. Yeah. Why do you end up being so, 
like really passionately hate the person that you felt so passionately in love with. And you can't feel that level of hatred for someone else, you know, and why not? And, 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 you know, it's anyway, and I've done the play many times and and, and, uh, so many different audiences and you go, well, there's a universal truth there. I think they use that, those universal themes in a lot of their plays. So I did a play called Paranoia, for example, and it was, and it's this character that's completely paranoid. I mean, he's paranoid. So it starts off with him sitting, having a chat with you at the audience as he's sitting in a cafe and he wants to smoke and he's afraid to smoke in front of you, the audience. And so he, he opens his menu and he pretends to smoke behind it and he blows the smoke into the menu and then closes the menu and that sort of thing. So the the smoke won't come out. I mean, it's, it's a clown thing. And they gave him a menu and they sat him in front of an audience and this, go you know and that's what came out right yeah so that stuff would be really mercurial like it would change from night to night and sometimes a bit would go on a lot longer than other times that people weren't reacting um yeah i understand that there was a uh it's funny you mentioned cliff saunders uh and again this is the i think this is the first time i've mentioned Blythe on the show Mm -hmm. but it won't be the last um Mm -hmm. and uh i remember he had an exit from (laughs) remember this uh, well, uh, it's just that Cliff Saunders is a shit disturber on stage, he's right? He's totally. Yeah. And he's always trying to give the bird. Yes. Have you noticed this? Yes, yes. I've got pictures of him where he's, it's a group shot and he's doing this, like in every single one of them, right? Yeah. He likes to get away with shit. <laughs> yeah. We would time, uh, I forget who the stage manager was. I think it may have been Tanya Grieve. We were it would doing, have been Tanya. Uh, there, yeah. Black Bond Spiel, William McCrimmon. Yes. And uh, there was an exit that he would do with Dennis Fitzgerald. Yeah, and uh, he was playing pipe fitting, uh, and so he had this plunger that he would like like figured out all the gags with the of plunger. Right? He Throw did. the plunger, of stick course. to the ground, stick to the oh, like yes. the plunger would stick, and then he would like try to get it off, and yeah. then the devil would like. And then the, yeah. anyways, yeah. he would. The last line would end, and it would the next the next stage direction was you know pipe fitting exits stage right, and we would time between that line and when he actually got off stage. <laughs> It was about a minute and a half. Like he would all this well, business, and every night it got longer. It's comic genius and more though. funny. It really and is more funny. Yeah, no, he's funny. he's a, he's one of the best clowns I've ever seen. Yeah. So in he he won't come in from the barn. Yeah. Oh yes. Okay. So yeah. in he won't come in from the barn. We had chickens on stage, right? And they were down left in front of the pros. And you remember, like we built the stage up, so you had a plug that you could put in there, right? Yeah. So we had the plugs in. You know all this oh, stuff, yeah, yeah. and. The chicken coop was right there, and he came, he had an entrance sort of out of there. Oh, no, it was a half plug. Yeah. He could come through the, the pros, come up some stairs, right? right? Yeah. But there was partial plug there. Anyways, every time he entered, before he entered, the chickens would go crazy. Yeah. And, I, and then I finally asked him about it, and he said, oh, yeah, um, like I go under the stage, and there's a hole under the chickens and I take a broomstick and I stick it up and down. I make the chickens go crazy. And then I make my entrance. He never told anybody. He just kept doing this. <laughs> it's a little shit. That a little guy. shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but he's so funny. I, funny. Like he's, I remember being at, um, the, um, God, what was he in at YPT that I did? Um, many things, but what was it? Pinocchio. Pinocchio. He was Pinocchio. Um, and we were opening night. Of Pinocchio, and it, it was an evening show, right? Because the openings at YPT used to be evenings. I don't know if they still are, but they were then, yeah. seven o'clock. 
and uh, we're having drinks, you know, and you know the YPT uh, lobby, yep. you know, those stairs that kind of go down to a landing and then they turn around on 180 and they go down. It's like three or four of those. So I'm, I'm sort of down at the bottom of those talking to somebody in the lobby and Cliff's up at the top and he turns around to me and he goes, Hey, and he's like, he looks, he's really drunk. Hey, hey. And he turns around and he goes, boom. And he falls head over heels all the way down the stairs to the landing, like about eight stairs. And they're concrete, I believe, right? And really spectacularly, bang, lands on his back, stands up, goes, ah, hey, hey. And he does it again. And he points his finger at me and he comes right at me and he falls completely down, like completely head over heels at my feet. I freaked out. This is opening night. He's Pinocchio. Right? <laughs> He's broken all his bones is what I think. Yeah. He was fucking around. He wasn't drunk at all. <laughs> he was playing around. He got up and said, oh, I've just been working on this. <laughs> you give me a fucking heart attack. What are you doing? Like, insane. But, you know, he's always, you know, I, I love Cliff Saunders. I think Cliff Saunders is a really great guy. and He's not a typical actor at all. Um, okay, so, uh, Theater Columbus, let's talk about the anger of our listeners. So yeah. th- you've done the show... Eight or nine. Uh, I think times. I think it's actually seven. Seven times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty. You've done the show twenty-seven times. <laughs> Twenty million times. Um, and uh, so, t- tell me about you. We've already talked a little bit about it, but how did you? Yeah. Um, how did you get into designing it? You weren't the original designer, no. right? Uh, so this was the second show I did with Theater Columbus. The first was the Melancholia show, uh, and so I wasn't really established. I just kind of hel- helped them out. And when they went to do that show, uh, Ernest and Ernestine. Uh, it was at the Poor Alex, and um, they had, still to this day, don't actually know how they contacted this friend of mine who was not a theater guy. Yeah. He's an artist. Yeah. And they had him design the set. I actually still don't remember how the connection was made, because it wasn't through me, yeah. even though we were friends. Um, and I was, I lit it at the Poor Alex with 30 lights, yeah. most of which were Fresnels. Um, and, uh, and I was... I was involved, like we didn't really have a TD. So I was sort of the TD as well with the guy who designed it. And um, it featured a a stair, which is, they live in a basement apartment, right? So the set is a basement apartment and it's a a story of a couple, and those of you who do not know, uh, it's a story of Ernest and Ernestine who have this idyllic relationship where they move into a basement apartment together and it all goes to shit. And it's all about the dissolution of of a relationship. And um, uh, the set had this cantilevered stair that as you, and in the poor Alex, which had a nine foot yeah. 10 grid, I believe of yeah. the, so you would come up the back of it and then you, you get on these stairs and the stairs would go down, right. they were counterweighted. Yeah. And then as you got off it, the stairs would go back up again. Right. The whole idea was it was a basement apartment and they barely had enough room. Right. So this became a feature of the set. And of course they did all kinds of latsies with the, Stair that went up and down, up and down. Well, opening night, as I say, we used to, the poor Alex shows, the typical schedule was you had a, I think it was a two-week run, and you would load in on a Monday or late Sunday if you were good friends with the people who were striking the night before. Because with the poor Alex, they just gave you the keys. Like you, you supplied your own technician, you supplied everything. They just gave you the keys. So you could be in there 24 hours a day, sure. which we were yeah. often. Um, and uh, anyway, so opening, so you would go in on a Monday and then you would usually open on the Wednesday. Yeah. 
Sometimes, I think as we got more sophisticated, we'd make it Thursday. But typically it was like Wednesday. That's not an unusual schedule to me for that time period. Like even now... like, do, is that it, some, well, think about it now. Yeah. I think I would be challenged to take a show in on a Monday yeah. and have it open on a Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would I would be challenged to do that with my skill set now. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how we did it with no skills. But, <laughs> but common. Like, I remember doing that all Everybody the time with those it. small shows, yeah. right? Yeah. But you also had four weeks rehearsal, which was different yeah. in that you came in a little bit more prepared. Although in Theater Columbus's case, not necessarily sure. because they were still changing it. Yeah all the time hey so it was but the 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 model was four weeks of rehearsal and then it went to three and a half then it went to three then it went to two and a half and now it's two and a half including previews i think in some places right yeah so um uh so opening anyway so we didn't have any time and things like masking and stuff like that was done at the last minute or painting the floor i remember um sitting in a lobby of a show that I hadn't worked on and I heard this sound coming out of the poor Alex and it was a blow dryer and somebody was blow drying the paint on the stage as we were at the half and everybody, they opened the house like at five minutes before eight because they were blow drying the set. Yeah. So the last, Roger West was the, uh, like the space guy. Yeah, and uh, he, <laughs> at the last minute, they wanted to put a, a mask. We realized that we could see, like, through this stair, you could see it needed masking, right? Yeah, yeah. So he, at the last minute, he goes with his screw gun, and he gets an old black, piece of black flat from somewhere, and he goes, wah, 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 and he screws it up. Yeah. So the show begins. Martha walks out onto the stair, and he'd put the masking flat in such a way that it, it interfered with the cantilever, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't go down. The stair just stayed there. So there's the opening of this new play. (laughs) She couldn't make an entrance. There was no way to get on the stage at all, right? And Roger rushes back with a crowbar and literally rips it off with a crowbar, like in the middle of the show, right? Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those those were the days. Yeah, exactly, right? Excellent. Now, you had a, an opportunity to... So, first of all, how does Sue LePage fit into this trajectory um, as well? Oh, cool. okay. So, I mean, I was a freelancer and just doing whatever work I could get, right? And because I'd been a TD at U of T, I would get jobs as a production manager or technical director, or sometimes shows I was designing, sometimes shows I was not designing. Um, and Goodnight Desdemona it was not the original production of it, but it was the sort of second production of it. It, was, it, it had a national tour. And they were looking for a touring TD. And because I had, oh, when I, when I first graduated Ottawa U, actually, I, I, didn't, I didn't go directly to Toronto. I had a job with Le Groupe de la Place Royale, which is a modern dance company in Ottawa. For some reason, they hired me as their quote-unquote stage manager, lighting designer. So I, I was with them for a season before I moved to Toronto. Um, so what was the point of that? Um, yeah, I know. Um, Oh, yeah, so I had experiences touring. Oh, yeah. That's what I was saying. So um, Desdemona was going to do this four-city tour. Yeah. And it was a proper, like, two and a half weeks in each city. Yeah. Um, I started in Ottawa. And uh, and they hired me to do it. And Sue was a designer. Right. And I didn't know her. And, and she's, you know, incredibly detailed yeah. and skilled and well-trained designer. And, uh, you know, 
we we ended up oh i know we ended up driving to stratford a number of times to pull costumes oh, right. anyways i would go with her and because you know we both like to talk we were just bap, 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 the whole time we became friends and uh she, i she knew i was aspiring to be a designer and i was very insecure about my skill set and my lack of training formal training which i didn't have any and she sort of just said well you know i remember for opening night of desdemona she gave me uh, a mechanical pencil a sharpener uh, an eraser and a racing shield yeah. you know and kind of a little kit yeah. right um and a roll of vellum or right. something like that yeah. you know some drafting dots and uh and and then she kind of she gave me some instruction and then after that basically i would if i couldn't draw something i'd ask her how or if before i submitted a set of drawings if it was super important uh, i was nervous about it like early ypt stuff um i would send it to her and she would uh, give me notes on it how i should notate things and that sort of thing because her drafting's beautiful and uh yeah so so yeah she took it on uh, on her own and this is what we were talking about before mentoring, I think is super important. And I've tried to do that myself. In fact, I've mentored a couple of people that have, you know, Raha Javanfars, I've mentored her. So, And Andrea, I bet. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. that's a good point. So you were at the Poor Alex. Now, um, Theater Columbus, what was your connection otherwise to the Poor Alex? Was it just working through Theater Columbus? So Theater Columbus, yeah. Because, uh, yes, Theater Columbus, Melancholia, um, then I did a crow show there. Uh, so, you know, when you were part of that group, of, yeah. there were four companies, again, four companies, yeah. I think, that were in the Poor Alex group. Yeah. They were called the Poor Alex group. Crows, um, Smith Gilmore, right. um, Columbus, and... Is it Cameron? No. No. I can't remember the fourth company. What was Alex? It may be... Or a, Daniel Brooks' company. Oh, Yeah. Uh, oh no! You mean um, they were they came after? Oh, okay, okay, okay. The the one he did with Tracy and, yeah, and yeah, Don, yeah, yeah, which I've now forgotten the name of. That's terrible. God damn it! Yeah, I can't remember the name either. It's terrible. But they they were after. Yeah, and they were named after the uh, like an address or something or a, or a street or <gasps> oh, something like God. that. God. Yeah, I'll find out. Yeah, and I'll put it in the because they did the those, uh, those great. Uh, yeah. um, uh, uh, Ah, shit, what's the name of that politician writer? That yeah, Chomsky, Noam Chomsky lectures. Oh yes, yes, that was that was where Andrea Lenny comes into the picture because she worked with Daniel yeah. in that company in yeah. that space. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we'll figure out what the fourth company is. I can't well, for example, one. Andrea. Okay, so Andrea, when we did Twelfth Night with yeah. with Theater Columbus, uh, Andrea was my student. Yeah. Okay, so um, when I taught at U of T, I interviewed. There were, uh, I think, 12 people in the class, yeah. and I would usually get 50 or 60 students apply right. for it. So I, I would go through weeks of interviews. Yeah. I don't know why I did this. Um, and mostly it was about, it was like a job interview. It was like saying, how many courses are you carrying? Um, you know, uh, do you have a part-time job? Uh, how far away from the school do you yeah. live? And that sort of thing, to find out if people could, could put in the hours. Uh, and Andrea was one of them. And she was from Ottawa, and her mom had run Theatre 2000 in Ottawa, which I knew, but I didn't know her. She'd been like seven years old or something like that. But as soon as I talked to her, I went, oh, well, this, this is a theatre person. Like this, I, I, I always felt that Andrea was more of a um, colleague than a student, always. 
I mean, I did teach her some, I'm sure I did, but mainly it was just that we developed together. Um, and because I liked her so much, I started involving her in all the theater Columbus stuff that I was doing because I was still at U of T and I had to juggle it, you know, and I built shows. We, we rehearsed at U of T. I got them cheap rehearsal space and then we would build them in the space, build the shows. We didn't have shop or anything like that. I had tools there. Um, and nobody cared. Nobody monitored it at all, right? So I just did it. And um, and Andrea started doing everything with me. So the Fringe, yeah. for example, when I was I was the production manager, she was the TD. Yeah. Uh, and we basically just did it together. Yeah. Um, and with uh, Theatre Columbus, it started off that I would production manage and light the shows. Then I started designing the shows and she would production manage the shows. Um and then with Twelfth Night, I remember I had a oh, it was Desdemona was a conflict because that show had to tour, and every three every two weeks I had, or three weeks I had to go and move it to the next city, yeah. <clears throat> and there was a conflict with Twelfth Night, yeah. uh, something around like I could be I missed a day and we had such a short time, yeah. so it was like a crucial day or something. So I, I remember think, saying to Andrea, why don't we co-design the lighting? And she went, oh, I'm not a designer. I don't want to do And I said, oh, come on, you know, like, it'll be fine. I'll come back. And, you know, and I was young and I didn't, it was pretty simple. I realized now anyway, what we were doing, but it felt huge. And, um, and I had to convince her to do it. She just said, I'm not a designer. I don't have that. And that was basically it. Like she, she started to become a designer after that. Like it was just luck as i say it wasn't like i had a a plan <laughs> to turn her into a designer but to... no but still like to see that in her and to to trust her and to maybe give her the cue that no this is now oh yeah the next thing you know andrea doing, like, like doesn't take much to see the potential no, in that person absolutely like, not yeah. yeah that's incredible that she was kind of just a bit uh, hesitant at first, right? Oh, yeah. Given well, her she was never comfortable now. being a designer, actually, I think. I, I, I mean, I have to ask her that. I don't know if you've interviewed her or not. But, yeah, uh, yeah, we spoke. Oh. This is why I've sp- I'm speaking to you now. It was a bit about that connection. I'm like, Glenn, like, I didn't know about your history in the 80s. Oh, yeah. And I was like, no, no, no. We have to talk to Glenn about the French. Sure. And so, yeah. yeah, no, she, I mean, it sounds like you were pretty instrumental in getting her into that into that group and then getting her connected to Daniel later. And like that sort of, sure. I think through, it was a small group. And so if you were at the poor Alex doing stuff, everybody knew you. Um, tell me about how, uh, your memory of how the fringe got started, how you got involved with it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the early designs I did was with a company that Julian Richings and his partner, Cheryl May and Gregory Nixon had developed, uh, called, Shit, that's terrible. God damn it. It's on there, yeah. Uh, uh, hashish was the show. Oh. Oh, so. Sorry, now we're looking for the company, right? Yeah. I can't uh-huh. remember. I can't remember. Oh, shit, that's terrible. Uh, we, we kind of existed for a couple of shows. We did the Blue Egg as well, which was a James O'Reilly play. I don't know if you remember oh, James O'Reilly. Uh, flexible Packaging Plant. Oh, yeah, that's it. Flexible Packaging Plant. What a great name. I know, right? And uh, uh, so uh, Gregory Nixon, who was one of the founders of that company, uh, I had designed set and lights for that show. And um, it was a very small, like, like five people, yeah. right? And so he became the producer of the first Fringe, and he approached me and said, do you want to be the production manager or TD? or I can't remember what we called me. And Andrea was my assistant. Right. Well, I needed help. Sure. Yeah. yeah. 
and we we thought <laughs> we thought so and it was also at the poor alex so it was a space that i was familiar with it was at three venues we had the poor alex we had um the palmerston library <laughs> and we which had, is now the kids venue you, or uh, has been the kids okay. venue for the fringe in the and past, sneaky d's oh yeah so those were the venues yeah. like only one of them was a theater yeah. and even then that's kind of dubious like the poor alex yeah. you know and we rapped so what we would do we learned eventually how many shows were in the first you said three venues 50 shows in 50 three venues. shows and really only one of the venues was a theater yeah. uh palmerston library we used as a theater yeah. i mean it had lights yeah. and yeah. seats <laughs> there's yeah. not really a backstage area though no in palmerston. Like i actually don't remember room. it's like a dressing room i think kind yeah. of thing but and and this yeah. yeah and the stage itself is like a little thrust it's yeah. like, it's like a, at, an, at an angle to the audience too. It's yeah weird it's one of these jammed weird, into the yeah some architect made it fit yeah yeah uh so but i saw the the first Napalm the Magnificent there, like when he did his first production of Napalm, the, I saw that and that was brilliant. And I saw Sensible Footwear first time, the first time I ever, they became my good friends. Um, Great. So 50, yeah, 50 venues. Yeah, 50, 50 productions. And what we would do is we would, we, so we teched every one of them ourselves. I know we were crazy. Like either she did it or I would do it. But we would tech every single one of them ourselves. And then when we were running it, we would show up at every performance to make sure it happened on time and that the changeover went and, you know, all those things. And we were present at every changeover for the entire fringe, either she or me. Well, we didn't know any other way to do it. We were too nervous to to, to leave it up to anyone else. So we just did it ourselves and yeah, we were making it up. That's crazy. Um, Any other kind of remarkable productions from that? uh um, well, definitely Napalm the Magnificent. I remember that he would do this thing where he would, I don't know if you know it. Have you ever seen it? No. Oh, he does that dwarf thing where he, like he, 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 he straps his legs like this. So he looks like a dwarf yes. and he pulls himself around on blocks and stuff. And he's a buffoon. So he insults his audience and he would do things like sell stale buns at it in the lobby before the show that you could throw at him. And then at intermission, he would collect them all up and sell them back to you. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, that show's brilliant. That show's really brilliant. You know, it's all about your shit and looking at your shit and, you know, and like all this really super inappropriate stuff, right? But he pushes, like he pushes you. Uh, I I was knocked out. And and then I did another production of it later on, like where you did a full production of uh, Napalm. Napalm the Magnificent is the name of the character. Um, who's, the, who's the actor? David Craig. Oh, David Craig. Yeah, wrote it and, and performed it. And his son has done it too. Oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah. I had no idea. He can't do it because his legs, it's like really bad for your knees. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, you yeah, strap yeah. your legs like this. Yeah. And then he, he had his, uh, I think Laurie Hickling designed it actually, a costume which looked like a suit coat that went, so it looked like he just had these little legs. He made, she made pants for him that were like this long with cuffs and stuff. But it's because when he was up like this, essentially his waist became here. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah and, odd. Uh, and uh, you can't see this on radio, but uh, yeah. it's basically knees to chest. Yeah, it's like, like, you, it's like you're it in a crouch. Yeah. And, and, you, and, you, and then you put a belt around your ankles and around your back to right. keep you in that position. And then you couldn't uh, make steps. Right. So you had to kind of he would use these two blocks on his hands 
that he would plunk down and sort of um, bring himself forward like on crutches almost, right? Yeah, and I designed a multi-level set for him that because he wanted levels, yeah. partly because he's so short when he would do this. He'd be three foot. Oh, right. So lighting him, for example, when you're focusing for the show, you were focusing at your crotch, essentially, right? Because that's where his head was, the, the head height. It's like lighting for, for puppetry for marionettes. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and, and when I designed the set and all these levels, I couldn't make any of the steps more than about three inches. Because right. he had to jump up onto the step. He couldn't step up onto the step. The ergonomics of the set were completely different. Um, yeah. So that one. Um, chip in the sugar, for sure. The sensible footwear. Um and that's with Alex Dallas and yeah, her partner. Um, oh, there are three of them. Just three of them. Um, I'll uh, figure it out. We'll go again. Yeah. Show notes. I'll, I'll list the names. Alex and Allison oh, yeah. Fields. Yeah. And, oh, the yeah. Wendy Vowsden. Wendy Vowsden. Wendy Vowsden. Nice. Yeah. They were so funny, those yeah. guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beats but, are but, like anal sex. <laughs> that was one of my favorite ones. Beats are like anal sex. People are always trying to convince you you like them. <laughs> nice. Oh, my goodness. That's funny. Yeah. That's uh, so I actually sponsored them to come to Canada. They're part of their citizenship. Oh, right. Yeah. Because yeah. they were from the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which yeah. Like, Alex still lives yeah. just down the street. Yeah. She does uh, like, she, they are some kind of funny, those girls. Boy. Yes. Oh, my God. They are very, yeah, they're yeah. quite the company. Yeah. Um, all right. So the French, so that's great. And then the second year, what changed? Uh, yeah, we added a venue and got rid of a venue, I think. we. So we ended up at the Glen Morris, oh, yeah. which is a cool little venue. Well, people don't use that so much, but it's a cool little venue still, I think. Um, and that was the second year. And I think that was it. I think I didn't do it after two years. You were done, eh? Oh, yeah. It was a lot of work. And it, the pay was terrible. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't really about the pay. It was just that it was grueling. Yeah. Like you had to be, because we thought we had to be at every <laughs> changeover, which really wasn't the case. So yeah. We event- actually, I think the second year we got venue technicians uh, yeah. that were that we could trust or whatever, and we had a bit more of a system down. Yeah. And by that time, we I wanted. I think Andrea then did it. After, yeah, yeah, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. It is kind of one of those gigs that's kind of a succession, right? So the the after Andrea, she brought on Michelle and Kim Pertel and a bunch of other people. Oh, yeah. And then they eventually took over as PM and then Shauna Miller joined. Yeah. So it's a, there was kind of a succession yeah. of people as they trained new people to do that role. Because it is a really, it takes a, you have to live it once before you actually do any, like you can't just hire somebody off the street and say, run the fringe. No. You need to have experienced it, a bit of venue tech, like know how things work. Yeah, where the rules are before you can throw somebody into that madness. Yeah. Right? I think w- probably what helped me was I had worked at Harborfront. Yeah. And Harborfront is a, you know, a single day setup and show kind of place and multi venue and you do all kinds of different things. You have to do it quickly. You got a group comes in with a house plot and go, "Oh, we need this," you know. So I, I it felt like it was not that uh, uh not that much of a stretch. Great. And then how um the poor Alex, I remember that you brought me into a show with Andrew Ackman and Jack Nicholson. And again, I've talked about this on the show as well. Um, but uh, that was in 94. Um, I so did? <laughs> I know. You did the set, I think. What show? It was a big jungle gym. I don't remember the show. Oh, at the theater center on Queen Street. Wasn't that at the poor Alex? No. Uh, I think, no. It was at the theater center on Queen Street. And it was a jungle gym. And it had... Um, and it had 
sound triggers all over the Contact set. Contact mics and everything, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That was at, that the, was at the, th- yeah, the theater center. Yeah, which just became a sex club. I know. <laughs> they have a much nicer venue now, though. What? The theater center. Hoodoo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was a hole. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was, you know, you went down the basement of that place. That was scary shit, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember some late nights in that place. It was oh, scary. I, I totally forgot. I, th- I totally thought it was at the No, it was at the por- it, we, we put the seat, we turned the seating around. We had the seating at the other end. Um, and who directed it? Greenblatt directed it, right? Oh, Greenblatt directed it, I think it, yes. Greenblatt directed it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Good and it was like a, I guess I designed the drum. Yeah, and you lit it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I could swear it was at the Because po- I'd forgotten about that show. And it was like a, a vanity project. It was a one-man show. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, Andrew wrote the Andrew, play. And yeah, and, he, and then it. he stopped acting, I think. I know, yeah. I never saw him again. No, I think he became a lawyer or something. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. He made money. Oh, my God. Mm. Yeah. Um, great. So uh, anything else in that? When did you sort of... Because the poor Alex kind of ceased to be in the mid-90s, right? Yeah. I mean, it was getting... Um, uh, the, 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 the There was a guy that owned the building, a British guy, yeah. uh, who was a philanthropist. A true philanthropist. And he basically gave most of those companies... I don't know if they were free, but he had this idea of an arts community. Um, so all of those companies that were housed in the in the floors above, the poor Alex, uh, his idea was to have a... like Yeah, he was, he was an independently wealthy guy. He had two adopted sons. Because that guy, I think he either died or he moved back to England. I can't remember. And then Joe was, the, was his son's name. And I think Joe finally sold it or something. Yeah. And that was basically it. It became more of a real estate issue yeah. than anything else. But but I think when the father was either died or went back to England, again, this is a long time ago, I don't really remember. He was he was the reason that that in fact, you know, that guy should be honored in some way. Yeah. And now that I think of it, yeah. because none of those companies would have been able to survive or or, or develop the way that they did had it not been for him. He was he was a true arts philanthropist, and it's interesting. He was a Brit, <laughs> wasn't even Canadian, you know. I don't suppose you remember his name. I want to say Bill. You know who definitely know these things would be would be uh, like um, Jennifer Bruin. Sure, yeah, because Maybe I'll contact she was the she was the administrator at Theatre Columbus, right? When I started working for them, right? So. I not belong before she became the artistic director. Right. right. Many, many years. She went off and did Caravan and all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll contact her and see, because that's important. Again, she will remember that yeah. guy's name. I think Bill seems to come to mind, or William, or... Yeah, again, I'll put it in the show notes, and then I'll maybe make him a note. I think that uh, I'll probably mention it in the intro. That guy was and, hugely, yeah. like... Yeah, when I think about it, that without someone like that, I don't know how any of those companies would have got their start. And those are all fairly major companies. Eh? Smith, Gilmore, uh, Crows, Theatre Columbus. And I, the other I wouldn't one. Think, I want to say Autumn Angel or Autumn Leaf. Autumn Leaf. Tom Sokolowski's company. Oh, I think that you're right. I, I think I want to say that. Part of that. Yeah. He must have come from I was the never really center. part of that company, yeah. so... but. I think I th- that was the fourth company. I think you're right. I think maybe I've mentioned it in previous episodes, and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, which is odd, because he does opera. New, yeah. New opera. Well, right? that's what they were doing there, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, Autumn Leaf was doing sort of music-based stuff. Right. Interesting. I did uh, the alchemical wedding of Hermes Trismegistos. 
Ooh. down at Union Station. Oh, yeah. Which is part of the Armory Schaefer series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, that was my first pro venue, pro gig in Toronto <laughs> in my first summer that I was here Jesus. at theater school. Jesus. And it was like... It's massive. My God. Yeah. It was a big... Yeah. I was I was a lighting tech for it. Right. Um, and a guy named David Owen was the lighting designer. He was a film guy. And he did... He was the a learning. cinematographer. Yeah. Uh, and he did work down at the um, Independent Film Center... Um, Toronto, the Toronto Center for Independent Film, wherever it is, um, as just training people to be cinematographers. So he's a cinematographer, mm-hmm. and then he, just, he was got brought in by Tom to do the lighting, mm-hmm. which was giant because it was all architectural. We oh were shooting God. lamps through the you know the clerestory windows at the top of the thing. We had lights on the roof. HMIs are better. Uh, it was no, it was just it was this was uh, just when Source Force had been. Invented, and we had a bunch of like ten degrees on stands and pars blowing through these Bam. things. We didn't have the power for HMI, like on the oh, roof. Like there's right, not a lot of. Right. Uh, right. We had to run cable all the way back, like Soka everywhere. Right. So we couldn't run like five Ks up there. There was no way we could power up there. Right. Well, we could, but I imagine it would. Have been it was just like expensive. Just the weight of the cable to get. Yeah. Up there. Plus dimming. Plus it had to stay up there for several weeks, so you couldn't use like oh, a shutter. Oh right. Right. Because uh, we were running. I think that we were it had to it had to be wa- wa- um, weather waterproof, waterproof yeah. or weatherproof, uh, at least rated, at least rated. And then yeah. we would uh, we would, um, of course, it was still Union Station, and we had to clean everything up. It, re- it <laughs> ran from midnight to three, and oh, so wow. the last train would leave at eleven thirty or eleven fifteen, <sighs> and then we'd roll out the seating risers, clear out the thing, unbag the lights, put the things that are falling. I never spots. saw it. I wish I had. It I was really... massive. Oh, I wish I'd seen it. It was great. Yeah. And telebeams. We had telebeams. Um, that was like yeah, early like, technology. Telebeams run off of a, a separate controller, of course, triggered by something. Who yeah. knows? I have no idea. I yeah. can't remember. Uh, and then at three, uh, John Kelly Cuthbertson was the uh, TD. <laughs> yeah, it was great fun. And then we would go back he didn't to John. Kill you? No, it was <laughs> he didn't awesome. wreck anything. We had so much fun. <laughs> John Kelly Cuthbertson. Oh, he was a tower. Yeah. Oh my god, he was a bit he, of a storm. Oh my god, he wrecked my car. Oh no. That's at terrible. the at the uh, remember the um, set reset down at the foot of Bathurst oh, yeah, yeah, at the Lost Building. You know yeah, how you yeah. drove up into it? Like oh yes, you go in and you drive up a ramp. Yeah, so you could drive in. Yeah, so I drove in in my Honda Prelude. Yeah, yeah, which was my uh, I love that car. Yeah, and um, I parked it like you just kind of park it right. Yeah, like sure. it was just up there. You just park it. I parked it and I was off doing something. And John Kelly wanted a piece of floor to lay some <clears throat> lay something out. Yeah, so he got in my car. And he moved it, and he used the parking brake, which I never used. Right. And he seized my brakes. Oh, it cost me $400. Oh, God. Yeah. I was so fucking pissed at him. <laughs> I can imagine. We would, finish the, we would finish the night at about 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the morning, and then we would go to John Kelly's place to drink until about 11. Everyone's going to work. We're on like, woo, whiskey. <laughs> it was pretty spectacular. Yeah. I, I like John. He's a good guy. Hi there. Yeah, I know this interview is going really well, but before you skip ahead, just shuffle over to the show notes if you could and click on the link to the Patreon page for the title block. It does cost money to produce this time capsule of theater design history, and for a couple of bucks an episode, you can ensure that I can continue to put out great interviews with designers like Glenn Davidson. Go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate now. Thank you for your help. So let's catch up with, um, I think we've beat uh, the fringe to death, <laughs> as it were. Many of us have wished that we did that. 
time to time. Um, the tarragon you said was your next. Yeah, my first kind of like legitimate theater show. Because yeah. at the time, so I'm sorry, Theater Columbus, you were legitimate, but you were fledgling, and you know sure. you didn't have a building, and the tarragon was an you know established, established theater, yeah. and I knew of them. And Urjo Carreta was, you know, like a giant and, and deservedly so. Um, and Sula Page. So Sula Page was designed there a lot. And she took it upon herself. Like I said, she just decided that I had something that she thought needed to be developed. And, and she basically, I think she basically went to them and said, you should hire this guy, give him something. And they did. Uh, at the time, uh, Judith Thompson was a playwright in residence that year, and she was uh, writing Line in the Streets, which was premiering. And um, they decided as part of that, that in the extra space, because uh, Main Space had Line in the Streets premiering, that we would revive Crackwalker. And so it was co-directed by Urjo and Andy McKim. Uh, and, uh, and Urjo being... Um, a really, not really a director in, in, in some ways in that he wasn't often real comfortable in front of a group of people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Andy would be sort of like the mouthpiece in a way and, um, uh, and Urjo would sit quietly and give notes and, and you'd, you'd hear notes from Urjo, but usually secondhand. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was, <clears throat> I was so intimidated yeah. uh, <clears throat> because, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I had never designed anything from scratch. Yeah. And I was given a play which is very kitchen sink reality, yeah. uh, you know, um, and it's not my thing. Yeah. Like, I, I've never been particularly attracted to it or, or I don't know, I just, I, I, I didn't know how to approach it. And um, so I remember Andy McKim and I had decided we would drive to Kingston and visit all the places that are mentioned in the play. Right. I, again, I just needed to immerse myself in some way. And so we did. We drove and we drank a beer in every place. And we were, and, and we were driving home. And on the 401, I noticed these culverts that go underneath the um, highway. And they're concrete. And they're sort of um, like a truncated per pyramid shape okay. looking even though the, the hole in them is rectangular, square, but the shape of the thing is sort of like a truncated pyramid uh, flaring out towards the base. And I also had noticed, because it was a hot day in, in Kingston, that we, everywhere we went, the, the roads were in rough shape and the asphalt was cracked and heaving, and it's called the crack walker. And, you know, I, I, it really struck me that these people spent a lot of time on the street. <clears throat> and so I tried to kind of literally uh, give them... Um, a heaving pavement with cracks and, and like a like an asphalt yeah. uh, with a, a drain in the center, yeah. um, which was basically not round, but it was roundish. Yeah. And it had this culvert, which was the main entrance oh, right. that you came through. Yeah. And there's a character in the crack walker, uh, uh, the native character, who also in our production appeared behind... Like um, I used bug, scre bug screen, yeah. um, and it would be on top of this culvert. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so I presented this thing. I made it out of foam core, and I painted it about fourteen times. Right. <laughs> and uh, and I built them all. I didn't know what I was doing, and I and I took it in to present it, and and I was very very intimidated that by 
by Urjo, mostly. Not, you know, just because of who he was. And he, he sat and he looked down and he didn't say a lot. And he said, man, I really like it. It's, um, it's like it's a Greek, the play is a Greek tragedy. And you've designed a, 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 a play with a vomitorium and a Greek. I didn't see that or, 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 or had not intended that at all. Well, he saw that. Yeah. It made me think about it afterwards whether whether that meant it was invalid or not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that he saw that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I did too subconsciously. I don't know. Uh, but I do remember getting this incredible boost of confidence sure. from him seeing something in it and being excited about it, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't what I'd intended. Yeah. I was just relieved that he'd accepted it. And then he'd gone for it because it was pretty out there, yeah. a design. I mean, you know, there was a couch and a chair and a, and a, a stove yeah. and a coffee table, I think. And it's all set in kitchens and, and uh, uh, you know, in very much sort of realistic environments. And there was nothing realistic about it at all. Um, and it was my first real design. So, yeah. And then um, I, I did many shows at Tarragon after that yeah. uh, while Urja was still alive. And then uh, after he died, I basically never did another show there. <laughs> I did one last year, though. Nice. Which one was that? Undercover. Nice. Uh, did you do Fronteras Americanas? I there? did. The first one? Fronteras Americanas. Yes. Yeah, in the extra space. Yeah, I saw that show. Oh, yeah. It was on a rake, I think, wasn't it? It was a rake. It was a ramp. A ramp. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It was, it was a rake, but it was really a ramp. It was quite steep. Yeah. Uh, and it split in the middle at what we called the... Uh, uh, Panama Canal. Right. It was like a ramp and then there was a gap and then there was a platform at the back. And we used to call that the Panama Canal because it was, um, the, the set was a map, like a yeah. kind of an, a kind of a, not a real map. Like, a, uh, cause the projection surfaces were, I cut out of this four inch solid styro that they had in the shop yeah. and it was free. That's why I used it. And, um, we cut it out into these vaguely continental shapes and then we projected on them. But we projected like ecto- like with an ectographic projector, yeah. slide projector, <clears throat> That's right. literally. I and we had video as well with a big old three-gun video <coughs> projector. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that show is all multimedia. <coughs> it's a lot of him indicating with a pointer, mm-hmm. you know, basically. Uh, uh, it's a funny show. And then we remounted it at uh, Soul Pepper, I don't know, four, three or four years ago? Yeah, that's, that's uh, Guillermo Verdecchia. Guillermo Verdecchia, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, anything One of my favorite productions, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. yeah no, definitely. it's a great show. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was so impressed by it. I saw it in uh, it was 90. 90 uh, was it I was going to say 93. 93 sounds right. It's, yeah. Because I, I remember getting fired from YPT while I was doing that show. Oh, God. Do you want to tell that story? Sure. Okay. <laughs> How does one get fired from YPT? Um. So I'd been hired as the light, as uh, to design as a resident designer for the um, uh, for the season I think ninety two season or ninety three season, and um, I was to design sets for well they had four shows, and uh, but one of the one of the shows was in rep so Pinocchio was in rep with Midsummer Night's Dream, and so it was the same set so I co designed that with. Teresa Shabilsky. Um, And I designed the set on the first show and she designed the set on the last show and I lit them all. That's what I was hired to do. 
so the first show went very well. Um, Maya directed it. Yeah. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, it was called. That's uh, Maya Ardell, right? Maya Ardell, yeah. yeah. Uh, Beauty and the Beast. And she was very happy with it. Told me that it was the best lighting design she'd ever seen. Right, yes. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, Greenblatt direct, directed Pinocchio. Yeah. And that was Mary Stella Rocca's script, and it was whacked. It was so far out there. We had people, Rick Roberts traversed from the booth to the back wall of YPT. If you go to YPT right now and you go outside of YPT, there's a big plate on the back of the wall in the alleyway. John Stead made us put that plate in to anchor the, the traverse line. He started the show over the audience's head, that's crazy. That was insane, that show. I mean, we, we brought people down uh, in, in the audience, into the aisles, upside down, wow. like being lowered. Yeah. Cricket was lowered into the aisle, upside down. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, Robin Craig um, uh, was Pigeon, and she was lowered from one of the catwalks, front of house catwalks, yeah. but she was swinging, oh like upstage, downstage, upstage, downstage, and they timed it. So that as they got lower and lower and lower and the art got bigger and bigger and bigger, by the time she got to stage level, she was basically just stepping onto the stage, oh, right? Wow. It was really beautiful. And it was Craig, the carpenter, Craig. Craig Blackley? Uh, yeah. Not Craig Blackley. Um, no, Craig. Um, oh, oh dear. He was the flyman. Yeah. He I wasn't just, a carpenter there. He was the flyman. He was the flyman. Craig, oh my God. We spent all our money. Half of our budget was spent on harnesses. I, yeah, no doubt, right? Because I had to be safe. Well, Pinocchio, everybody was flying all the time. Uh, can't remember. Craig's we did this thing where it was a yeah. two-level set, and you'd put clip people into harnesses, yeah. and they'd be on the ground, and people would be standing on the second level, and they'd jump and pull the rope, and you would pull them up, and then the next person would jump and pull them up higher, and each time it, someone jumped, they would pull somebody up taller and taller, or higher and higher. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. Anyway, so, oh, I was talking about how I got fired. Yeah. So um, Pinocchio was really good, and Jackie Maxwell was directing oh. Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. And I went to have a meeting with Jackie, and she'd seen Pinocchio. Oh, yeah. And Pinocchio was really dark. Yeah. Like, it was a dark show. I don't it just mean physically dark. It was a dark show. And it had been lit with really angular and really uplighting and a lot of kind of nightmarish sort of looking stuff. And she was worried. She'd seen it, and she knew that Dream had to be lit out of it, like it was in rap. And she was worried. And I said, don't worry, it's, you know, it's that show, and I have another 60 or 70 lamps to add, and and plus color changes, and it's going to look different. Like, it will. Trust me, it will. Well, I, I thought that I had her confidence. Apparently, I didn't. Um, because I was in tech at Tarragon and I got a call yeah. from Maya to go and meet me at the, uh, donut shop on Bathurst street, yeah. just South of DuPont. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it might be gone now. Galaxy donuts or maybe it was, or I don't know. It was a donut shop. Anyway. Oh yeah. I know where that is. Just so. Yeah. In fact, Cliff Saunders to this day talks about me getting the golden donut. That's what he calls it. I know Cliffy. Um, and she met me there and she said, you know, I think your streets ahead is a lighting designer than yours is a set designer. Or it's the other way around. Yeah. Streets ahead is a set designer than yours is a lighting designer. Right. I just not having confidence right. and let you go. Right. And I was like, um, well, I have a contract with all these yeah. comp- these shows, yeah. right? And I, And because it was for the season, they hadn't given me, 
like 50% of the four contracts up front. They, they were doing it in installments, right? So I said, well, you know, I've already, number one, designed the set for Dream and Rep. I did the rep for both shows. And I focused it. And I've already started work on Dream. The only show I haven't done is Whale, which was the last show. I hadn't done anything on it, right? Oh, she said, well, you can't talk to me about that. I have to talk to Martin, because Martin Zwicker was the production manager. And so I went to Martin, and Martin said, yeah, no, we don't owe you anything. I went, what? He said, no, we don't owe you anything. It's like, yes, you fucking do. So I became the first case of arbitration in ADC history. Oh, wow. Yeah. Unsuccessful, although they thought it was successful. They ended up getting me the retainer, on the third show, like right. the first installment, right? On the third show, on the third show is what I got, and they were happy. Right. They thought that was a victory. Right. That's when I left ADC. Yeah, because I felt like well, if that's if you think that that's power, yeah. you're a wimp. Like that's like, and then I I suffered for years yeah. of insecurity, yeah. thinking I was a shitty lighting designer. Sure. I really had a hard time with it. I really had a hard time with it. Because even though I didn't believe, and 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 what did I get a Dora nomination for? Pinocchio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pinocchio. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because it was yeah. probably a beautiful show. And you sure, whatever. You know what? I, like I said to her at the time, yeah. it's like, you know, this is subjective. Yeah. You don't like my work. I can't argue with you sure. about it. Like you don't like it. That's yeah. fine. I like Picasso. You don't. Whatever. You know, I'm not saying I'm Picasso. You know what I mean? Like it's subjective, right? It's art. It's subjective. But you have contractual obligations that you have to keep. If you want to let me go, that's fine. It's going to hurt my feelings, but not my pocketbook. And it did. I turned down work. It was a it was a season gig, and I was hot. Like that was I was right at my peak, man. I was doing shit everywhere. I was hot. I I really was. I was one of the you know properties then, and uh, you know I I went and then then it fucked me up too. That's interesting. Yeah. I'd never been fired from a job ever no. in my life, ever. A lot has to go wrong for people to get fired in this business. Like you have to do, yeah. you have to be, like, well, nowadays I imagine it's I was so embarrassed. Michael, more, I can tell you, I was yeah. embarrassed beyond belief. Yeah. Humiliated. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of which I didn't think it was warranted. I mean, like I never got a chance. Like if I had gone in and done a shit job and she'd fired me. Yeah. That'd be one thing, but she anticipated I was going to do a shit job, and I got fired, and that that didn't feel fair. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's the past, yeah. but it's a, it's an it's an interesting story. We all have imposter syndrome, right? Oh my god, yes, we all do. Yeah. And um, and it, and it, all we need is the slightest. Uh, hint that it's warranted yeah uh, and we go right there yeah exactly yeah it's so true i mean you can imagine i mean actors on stage are so vulnerable mm-hmm. uh to these kind of to the whims of the audience and the play oh, God, and, yeah. you know they're they're up there naked and sometimes literally and uh but we're all kind of being judged by our peers all the time all the time that's how you get work yeah or how you don't get work. Or how you don't get work. Right. Yeah. And not just your work, but your comportment, yeah. your personality, yeah. your, and you're then, pitching stuff constantly. Yeah. 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 And that takes, <clears throat> that takes a lot of confidence, right? Yeah. And we all think we have it. And of course we're all you know, like dreadfully, you know, insecure. <laughs> no, it's, it feels risky too, where you're like that, you like the, the thing when you talked about bringing the crack walker set in, you're like, 
Like, here's my, this could go sideways quickly, right? Yeah. Here's the idea. And I don't think until mid-career, five, six, seven years in of my design career, I was actually confident in going, I've got all these ideas, which is unfortunate because early on, you've got a lot of new, fresh, weird looks on things. But I you don't know. know how to present it. I know. You have the confidence to sell it or to sort of say, yeah, we're going to, I don't know how to make this work yet, but we're going to make it work. Yeah. Uh, and, and you get a bit more cautious once you know what you can do. You yes. stop, you stop, start relying on what you can do and you don't think about trying to do the things that you can't. Yeah. Whereas when you're starting out, you couldn't do any of them. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think you're right about yeah. that. That's, uh, that's really true. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, cause there's things I do now, well, I'll just do them because I know that will work. Yeah. Not necessarily it's the best thing. I know it will work. And so I'll go there cause I know it will work. Yeah. I call it a bag of tricks. I think the very, when I spoke to Kevin Lamont, which was the second episode of the show, uh, we talked about this kind of bag of tricks that you get. And you have this exciting fire of like beginning of your career where you're trying a whole bunch of different things. And then you figure out what you like to do and you start to narrow down to this kind of mm-hmm. center, center way. Mm-hmm. And I think it shows um, the real kind of creative. Uh, I mean, it, it takes a lot of creativity to get to that point. So I don't want to belittle, I don't want to sort of minimize the talent someone has is as for the follow through of those of that bag of tricks because mm-hmm. that can be hard won series of things lessons learned that produce beautiful results but mm-hmm. um you know the people who are continually reinventing themselves after that point are the ones that let themselves take the risks and they fail right. a lot right. but but the stuff that that doesn't fail sometimes is really beautiful yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. but you got to find that I know, and, and, and then sometimes you'll find, like, for example, uh, I did a show called Dr. Dappertuto with Theatre Columbus. Um, and it was set in a million different places, like yeah. Theatre Columbus always is. And uh, I was trying to design a set that would be all those things. And I hit upon this kind of idea, you have to think about it in plan view of two L's. Yeah. And each one was an arch and a half. Okay, in an L. So you had an, two L's in an arch and then a half arch, yeah. right? And I had two of them. So I could move them around and create like a, a Z or a U or whatever. You can imagine if you put L's together in different configurations so you can get different shapes, right? And, and I combined them with a fixed set of three arches that were upstage yeah. that were fixed and had doors in them. They would kind of laugh indoors. You could go in and out. And... Um, and it was, and the, the, the two L-shaped things were on little casters and they rolled around. It was a poor Alex. It was made out of styrofoam. It didn't weigh anything. And they were stucco. Um, and it was set in Mexico and the nuclear test in Mexico in the 50s or something like this with, this, with the time of the show. And I loved the idea so much, like these L's. I loved them. Like I went, I, 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 I want to do this again. So then I got hired to do Romeo and Juliet, the ballet for Ballet Jorgen. And there was a touring show and they needed, again, multiple settings. Uh, and I essentially took the Dr. Dappertuto design, yeah. completely changed the arches. So they became um, uh, Italian arches, Renaissance arches oh, with yeah. proper capitals and columns. And, and so the, the, instead of just being a solid block stucco kind of wall, yeah. they became these much more elegant things and they were built and by at Banff, people who knew what they're doing. Um, and they were 
gorgeous. And they rolled around like on these beautiful casters and they were integrated into the, um, into the choreography yeah. to the point where when they like choreographies in ballets get sold or get used, right? Like the Kranko was used to be the R and J that everybody did. Yeah. Well, banked did this new choreography and it was exciting and it was, it was very good at choreography. Um, and the Hong Kong ballet yeah. were so interested in it. They bought it. They bought the choreography. Yeah. And in order to do that, they had to buy the set right. because the set was integrated into the choreography. Yeah. So I literally, and this was pre-internet, yeah. I literally put a roll of drawings in a tube yeah. and I sent it to Shanghai or Hong Kong yeah. and I got a check for $5,000. <laughs> and that was all I did. And I actually, and they, they loved it except that we, we'd done the balcony they didn't like. Yeah. They needed something more literal yeah. than what we'd done. Oh. And so I had to redesign one piece that was like a little balcony that was a little piece that they brought on just for that. And I remember years later when the internet actually was out there, I Googled it and I found a picture of Juliet stepping off my balcony of a set piece I had never, ever seen. I designed it, but I'd never seen it because it was built in Hong Kong and I never saw the show. At all. I never saw the paint. I don't know how the, it was white marble, but I don't know what their white marble looked like. It, yeah. You know, I sent pictures and stuff, but. It, That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Well, and then, so that, that idea for that, yeah. uh, the idea of these L's, I have used that. I, I almost embarrassed to tell you how many times I've used that uh, for these very similar, like I'll get in these shows. They don't have a lot of money. They got 14 locations. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, and I've done variations on this. In fact, as recently so last year, um, I was asked to do the show called Undercover, uh, which is Rebecca Northen show, and she did Blind Date. And the premise of it, it's, it's long-form improv. So the premise of this one, it's a murder mystery, and they take the detective, a rookie detective, out of the audience, an actual audience member, and they bring them up on stage at the beginning of the show, and they're on stage for two hours. And they solve the murder and it's like a clue setting. So it's in a big mansion. It's got a ton of rooms, got four bedrooms, got an attic. It's got a cellar. It's got a stable. It's got a drawing room. It's got, you know, a bunch of different rooms. And because it's improv, you don't know what room you're going to next. Okay. And each room has to have things like clues in it. Right. You know, because it's there's clues, you know, like paper clues or visual clues or this sort of thing are in there. So I had to design a set that could transform into all these different rooms with all these hidden compartments. They wanted hidden compartments and special things that would open and all this sort of stuff. And yet we didn't know. Sometimes we would do the show and you wouldn't go to three or four of the rooms that you designed. Just never went there. Or you'd one time we, I remember we never used to go to the stable and then we went to the stable once, like in a week or something like that, you know? Um, so guess what I did? So you imagine an L, I used a Y. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I had basically two walls times two for each unit times three. And I painted them different colors and I gave them different, and they were all paneled in the same way. So they all had the same similar architecture to them, but they were different colors and they had things, panels that popped out and popped in. And because it was strapping, 
you know, we used strapping. I used that, and we could, with earth magnets, pop panels in and out. It had a, a, a Murphy bed that folded down out of one of them, and it was all on casters, right? Things weighed about 1,500 pounds. They're massive, way overbuilt, way overbuilt. But anyway, long story, but the, that's the same idea, and totally looked different, completely different looking show, different function, but there was, that's in my bag of tricks, that, and that's a scenery system. And I think of that as a scenery system. Like um, Blythe, I did a lot of things on tracks, yeah. hanging tracks yeah. and stuff like that. Scenery systems. I like that. Yeah. I, I, that I get stuck on a system. Material, like uh, for a long time I did everything out of Tyvek yeah. and did every, carved anything out of styrofoam. Right. I love those things, like Tyvek and styrofoam. He went coming from the barn was all carved styrofoam beams, right? Yeah, that's very familiar to me. And I wanted to say that barn, I mean... This is what this is the first show I did when I came out of uh, university. Oh yeah, uh, that was the first. Was that right? There's Leslie Wilkinson who got me that gig. It was great, but uh, it was a barn. Like I mean, you had you had styrofoam beams. They had barn wood, but then it was painted. You get uh, Matthew uh, Goldstein yep. at the time yep. painted it to look like a barn. It was so high fidelity for a set that was repable and had beams in it. But they were post and beam. It was all styrofoam. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, it's funny because I still to this day can carve like a mean styro yeah, beam. Like sure. I can make it look like I'm so good at it. Because yeah. <laughs> I made them all. I remember sitting out in the yeah. back with that massive, like these 10 foot long hollow. They didn't weigh anything because yeah. they were hollow styro on my lap. Yeah. And I would be carving with a exacto and just moving along my lap. And there was a big pile of shavings yeah. around me. Was like, yeah, that was fun. Um, and then I carried it over on my shoulder, and I mean, the people were looking at me. It looks like a what, something that six people should be carrying, right? I'm just walking over with it on my shoulder. <clears throat> so much fun at Blythe. But you know what was the best thing about that show for me? Well, two things. The 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 cow giving birth on sta- on stage is pretty cool. I have a picture somewhere of the calf lying in the straw. Yeah. Um, but when we first installed the show, uh, and we brought the cow in, Remember the farmer came with the cow and he wanted to check everything out and we couldn't get it to go up the ramp because, and he said, I have to throw straw on the ramp. And as soon as we threw straw on it, it went up the ramp and it had to go up two ramps, right? The two loading docks into the back. And so there were two cows and he, the farmer brought and wanted to check it all out before he put the cow on stage. So he came in on stage and he looked at it and I walked him, he walked over to one of my posts And he poked it with his finger and he got this really puzzled expression. I said, it's styrofoam. And he went, his jaw opened. He didn't say anything. His jaw opened. And I thought, this is a guy who's every day in a barn, every day. And I fooled him from like three inches. So I was pretty happy about that. Yeah. I thought that if I can fool him, (laughs) and I always like to say that, of course, the cow felt so comfortable that it gave birth and... Boy, boy did it yeah did it There's goop everywhere and, and, and ted ted who ted johns mr farber yeah. expert yeah. freaked out i can't be on stage with that thing it, it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't clean right like a placenta it wouldn't pass the placenta it's a bit gross for the people listening out but <laughs> the, after the after the after the calf is born it has to pass the placenta in stage three of birth, and it wouldn't clean it the wouldn't, placenta. Yeah, it would come out and go, "Hello, everybody, I'm a placenta," and then go back in. And go back in. So then we had to take it off stage. Well, when the imagine what, how much fluid when a water for oh, a cow. It went everywhere. Yeah. That place smelled like cow. Were you a like technician? Cow. 
Yeah, I was the I yeah, was you the, were the house, I was the guy. house tech. Because you lit it and yeah. you were the tech. Yeah. Weird. Because they don't do that anymore. Not anymore. They used to. That's it true. Was, they used to do it that. It was the season that you saved got one. Life. Yeah, you got Person. one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the easy one. The easy one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, uh, I, I, and, and then, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Mike Chartrand. Oh, Chartrand. Yeah, who, yeah, yeah, who, yeah. who was shit boy. Yeah. Remember? We yeah. called him shit boy. Yes. He took, he took care of the, uh, the shit burrito at the end of the, that. There was a piece of uh, <laughs> so, fiber. Well, what we did was we, we made a tray yeah. that the, the two cows stood on yeah. that was fiberglassed. Right. And it went, and it was sort of a bit of a ramp downstage because Paul Thompson wanted them with their asses facing right. the audience, so you could watch them shit and piss constantly, and and then it was covered in fiberglass and went into a little trough, and it had to be cleaned all the time. So that poor Mike, he had to do that, and he became shit boy. Yeah. I know. There's a PA job for you. I know. The only reason I would come back, not the only reason I liked, I came back the next year, but I I, I had it written in my contract that Tanya, along with Tanya Grieve, who was the uh, the stage manager of Crystal. the show. Crystal. Uh, and Crystal Cervera was, was the, the first stage year. manager. Yeah, yes. The first year. Oh, but yeah. Tanya was the ASM backstage. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So Crystal was the, yeah, she was the stage manager. We got her so good that you were so many practical jokes. Anyways. She this, doesn't like having animals. She, you know, she won't she touch does, animals. She doesn't like animals on stage. <laughs> so Tanya uh, and I, I said, well, I'll come back because we, we did Barn at the next year as an extension of the And that's the when the, that's when the cow was born. Was born. The, the second, second time because I wasn't there. Yeah. We took care. Uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll come back and do the extension, but I want to take care of the cattle with Tanya. And we picked them up from the barn at the top yeah, of the show. Yeah, at the Hobby Farm, right? At the, yeah, at the Sema Farm. I was just there last week, actually. I went by no to take a picture of the Sema Farm. Mm. Uh, and uh, we would walk them from the barn to the stage and take them back. And uh, and f- and and then they extended the show because the, the, the extension, the... The show, the remount, right, was a remount, so well. and then it got extended. And yeah, like, that's why yeah. the cow had birth because the, the the original date due date was after the closing, and so then they, when they extended it, it went over top of the due date, oh, right? And no one went. Ah, oh, it's fine because well, you had to have you had to have pregnant cows yes, on the show. So on the show, so you didn't have to milk them. Yeah. Which I also is very interesting, like because it fucks them up, right? It'll fuck up their schedule yeah, yeah. by having a show schedule. Yeah. So you have to use pregnant cows. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or we'd have to milk them every day. Yeah, which three, wasn't going to happen. Times. Yeah, we're no. not going. Like, I mean, no. I. Yeah, no, they were not in a position to be milked. Uh, yeah, it was an incredible. It was an incredible process. Uh, but then we had to roll the burrito because there was a rubberized like spray. What's that called? Rubber that's painted. Rubber glue. Oh yeah, yeah, rubber latex. Rubber latex. Yep. That was over top of the um, the the floor cloth. Right. And then that was rolled up and put in the back of the pickup right, truck. The burrito. And the, yeah, the shit burrito. You weren't there when we when we put the thresher on stage, were you? No, I was uh, I was designing that season, but I was not okay. tech there. Yeah. Yeah, That's that crazy. was something else, yeah. man. Pulling that thing into the into the building yeah. was the hardest part. Yeah. Because we built a threshing machine. Yeah. Like a boat three quarter size. Yeah. Um and and then we went, how the fuck are we gonna get this in? Because we had to roll it up those two ramps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what he did? Mm. <laughs> John Kelly. John yeah. Kelly. Um, there's a pl- another plate. Right. <laughs> so if you go, if you look straight into the, the, the back of the second loading dock, like it would be the wall of the theater itself, yeah. there's a plate there with a, with a ring in it or something, some kind of a, I think it's a ring. A point. Yeah. Like a load and we point. ran a, uh, so we attached a rope to the front of the thresher. We ran it up to that ring, back 
onto the street and he attached it to the back of his truck oh my God. or David James's truck. I can't remember whose truck it was. And then they drove the truck in the opposite direction and pulled it up. But it, at first it didn't start yeah. and then it started <laughs> like it went boom and it went, <laughs> it freaked us all out. And suddenly there it is on the first level. I was like, <gasps> okay, uh, okay. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I know. It, well, the things that we put into that place. It's I mean, remarkable that kind of, that kind of, uh, Pat Flood, again, a black, black bonds bill. Yeah, Kremen, black bonds bill. Yeah. Had, uh, had um, rolling deck unit, not deck units, rolling truck, set, units. truck units. Yeah. That would run truck. That's a truck system we're looking for. Yeah. Haven't done theater for a while. Uh, and they would roll, roll on and off stage, like whole sets. I know. At the Blythe Festival. And you were fucking curling yeah. on stage. Yeah, and they were curling. They didn't, they didn't, they're doing a curling show this year again. Oh, yeah. And they're doing it with uh, video, but there's rocks on stage as well that they're curling as well. What do you mean they're doing it with video? They've got a, they've got a top down, they, they actually project oh. the rink. Onto the floor. Uh, it's really clever. It's cool. very, very clever. Uh, and then curl on top of it. Wow. Yeah, it's really And then it clever. goes away yeah. when you don't want it. Yeah, and then you, yeah. But they still must have to use a Teflon sheet and, uh, and armor all. You know what? I don't know what the, I don't know how they solve the problem. Because mm. uh, we use glycerin, I think. Armor all. Armor all, I think it was. And you know the thing with the sprayer? Yeah. You know, they actually do that in curling, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To pebble the ice. Yeah. Like it's part of curling. So it was. I, I remember when I saw the show, thinking, "Oh, it's too bad they had to do that." But and then I realized, no, they actually do that in curling. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was very impressed that they could do that on stage. I it think. was so great. Yeah. It was so great. Real curling rocks. Not. Well, I think most people do it with little wheels. I think Pat Flood. We talked about this in the Pat Flood episode. Most people you do just it with the rock little, itself would yeah, have the a little, has a little, little roller on the fake bottom. Rock and there's a roll yeah. on the bottom. Yeah. But they used actual real rocks on Teflon and on. A, and have more of the feel of it. Yeah. And Although in Blythe, I don't know how much of the floor you see. Low rake and high, yeah. high stage. Certainly the balcony got a great the show. The balcony. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's, um, let me just go through this thing here because I think we want to end oh, on. Uh, actually, stuff, can I talk about one? I, I, there's a Blythe experience I want to, I want to talk yes. about because yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is a really important one. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, I think the last show I did there, it's a few years ago. I got a call from Saverin Thompson oh, yeah. um, to do the farm show. Uh, revisiting the farm show. And um, and I thought to myself, number one, um, collectors are hard, yeah. and they're hard to design for yeah. because you don't, again, have a script. Um, and you, you kind of give want to give them something, but you don't want to kind of um, uh, box them in with it either. Right, so you want it to be open, but you want to kind of you almost have to impose something, or otherwise it's too open. You know, it's, so anyway, that's the, the design part of it is part of it. I went back up there and I went, okay, thinking, okay, farms, barns, you know, blah blah blah. And I'm driving around, I'm going, there's no fucking barns left. These are all metal sheds, like or 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 like factory, like uh, you know, big big buildings that are made out of sheet metal. Um, and I drove up to one. It was a chicken farm. Yeah. And the guy let me go in, and it was completely open inside. And I put on a hazmat suit, 
and he was, I was all comp- con- big computer control center with the uh, amount of light and heat and humidity and all the water, the fresh water that's being in the feed and everything. And the, the, the chickens are all running around like free. Yeah. Uh, 25,000. No. 2,500? 25,000. I think it's 25,000. The size of a football field this, yeah, yeah. this thing was in. All run around, little yellow chicks. Beep, beep, beep. They were worried about stepping on them, right? He gets those at two weeks old. He keeps them for six weeks. And then he, another truck comes and takes them away. That's what he does. That's farming. And so anyway, so it was interesting that this whole thing was so different. Farming was so different. And yet the process that we use to tell the story of those local people and what their life like, life is like, even though the stories are quite different and technology came into it a lot, a lot, um, cause, cause farming is hugely t- reliant on modern technology, GPS and all this stuff. Like these tractors cost, you know, f- f- half a million dollars and, 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 and they've got GPSs on them and they can plow by themselves. I mean, it's incredible. So I, I was really interesting to learn that, but the experience, that's what I wanted to talk about opening night. So the show is there, and we started off with an homage to the original yeah. farm show. And there's a photograph, black and white photograph of the original cast. Yeah. David Fox, uh, Claire Coulter, um, um, Paul. Uh, um, uh, f- uh, Fina McDonald was in it as well. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. To, we yeah. To her Fina was in it, that's yeah. right. Uh, Mac Donnell. Uh, 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 Jenna Amos, Jenna Amos. Uh, Ted... John's um, Paul's wife was just forgetting her name. Paul Thompson's wife. Oh, Anne England. Anne. Anne. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and uh, oh, and uh, Miles Potter. Miles Potter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I realized opening night I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh my god, for an actor, this is. It's usually you're going to portray a character, fictional character, or if you portray a real person, you're not person's not sitting in the audience watching you. And Blythe, these people are coming to watch you be them yeah. or be their brother and or be their father or be their cousin yeah. or their neighbor. And tell their story. And tell their story. And it's a huge responsibility. Like your truth, in terms of truth telling, it's a huge responsibility. And I sat there and I felt that really strongly. And I, I thought this is, um, this is sort of the essence of the Blythe Festival. Uh, it's where it came out of. And to be part of that revisiting, I realized that the same um, sentiment was there in its audience. It was as important to them as it was to the audience that had seen it 40 years ago. And we, we had this photograph, and it's Anne Anglin and Paul standing there with a babe in their arms, and it's Severin. And Severin is 40, right? Or she's in her 40s, and she has grown children. And sitting behind me opening night was Miles yeah. and Anne and I, like everybody. Yeah. They were all sitting behind me. And I just felt this, suddenly felt this. Uh, and I don't think I've ever felt like I was a part of Canadian theater history in that way before, in that part of that tradition. I felt like I was a part of that tradition that was an indigenous form for, that was born there in that hall. Yeah. Well, actually in a barn, yeah. not in that hall. Yeah. But nonetheless, in that in, in that county, yeah. 
and um, just how profoundly Canadian that is and how um, important it is as, as part of our, and it's not about theater. This is about um, like, like, like the roots of theater, storytelling and history and what you're talking about, what you're trying to do yourself is to preserve some of the uh, traditions behind those things. Yeah. And the histories that create those traditions. So the original farm show, Blythe was born out of. And to be a part of that. And what was great was it wasn't just, we didn't just do the farm show. We redid what they did. We retraced their steps. We took their process and we redid it today in the 21st century. An utterly different show about utterly different subject. And yet, universally the same and i just think that's uh, it really struck me and uh, i i you know you get jaded uh, uh you know and and i'm really jaded right now <laughs> like i really am and and i get very cynical about the theater sometimes and uh and yet moments like that and i realize and i'm more like a failed romantic than i am a cynic yeah. you know because those moments are important and 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 i hope those things get and and good for you for doing these things because hopefully they'll get uh carried on and and uh the stories will get told um because you know otherwise i have to come and sit in my first year class and listen to me go on about them <laughs> All right. I'm going to, I, I want to go back and talk about training. Okay. And this story will end on. Okay. So I'll cut in a thank you at the end of the training thing and I'll come sure. back in. Uh, okay. So um, you have been training theater artists, mentoring. In a fashion. And, after, and what, how, how have you been doing that? And, and uh, what are your thoughts on how we should be training? Like, where do you want to start this from? Like, yeah. how did you find yourself into yeah. that, uh, well, and get in that position in the first place? Well, I think when I, when I started teaching at U of T, um, that was just an opportu- job opportunity. Yeah. I didn't think of it as a teaching job. It was a TD job. Um, and then I realized that it, be- I, it didn't feel like I was teaching because were, students were only a couple of years younger than me. Yeah. So it felt more like I was just working with them. Um, but I come from a family of teachers. My father was a teacher. My sister was the head of the teachers union in Quebec. Uh, you know, a lot of tradition of teaching in my family. Um, and uh, I, I, I found that I was not a really great teacher in front of a class because yeah. uh, I'd get way too nervous and I'd jump around and talk too much and, yeah. and wave my hands. But, but mentoring I really liked. Uh, because then I could get into the person, uh, their per- particular. I'm really, I was really, I think, quite good at identifying what their strengths were, identifying their weaknesses, encouraging them to, you know, explore and push and that sort of thing. Because I am somebody who likes to take a risk and push a bit. Um, maybe less so now than I was younger. I don't know. Um, uh, and I was mentored. Uh, and I realized just how important that was. Like when, when Sula Page did that for me, I, I realized I don't think I could have really, uh, she really kickstarted my career yeah. and intentionally did so. She took steps to do so. Yeah. Uh, and I've done that with a couple of uh, young artists, uh, Raha Jamfar being one of them, uh, who was on a grant. Well, she, we, we, she wanted to mentor with me, so she found a grant yeah. and it said four shows. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you basically for four shows. Right. And at the time, one of them was the Tough Music Show. Right. Um, and it just happens to be that she's a classically trained violinist. Oh, wow. 
and you know grade 12 royal conservatory she good and she was trying to decide between a career in music and a career as a designer lighting designer and uh she came on one of the projects was this and i said well that's perfect you know because you read music right it'll be great and the show had a lot of video in it um Hubble Space Telescope slides and stuff like that. That they that the person who who Allison Mackay um, um, had already chosen, but I didn't know anything about video, and Raha didn't really either. So we started using like, but she knew more about computers than I did. So she started using like the the, the slide thing on her on on her Mac, and the show was built on Keynote, right, um, and. Then we did another show, and we did another show, and we did another show. And on the second show, I said, look, I don't really know anything about video. She should probably design the video. Right. And she actually became a video designer, and she's just, like, designed for other people. Right. Because of that, she's traveled. We've traveled all over the world together, yeah. like, all over the world. It's been a l 10 years. We've been doing four shows. And it all came out of one Ontario Arts Council grant, um, which has, you know, she's chosen to become more of a musician these days and she's doing that more. But, I mean, it, it definitely uh, opened a lot of doors for her as a lighting designer and as a video designer. And I don't think she intended it for that. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad about that. I'm, I'm glad that I helped open that door for her, you know, like whether she would decide to go through it or not. But I get a great satisfaction from it. Um, and I, I like it. I, I think I'd like it with groups too, but I just don't seem to be able to connect to a group the same way. Yeah. I, I just don't. I can't get them excited. Yeah. It's a different skill. You really, they're really like uh, imparting information that they have to. Like it's a more of a formal lecturing. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'm yeah. not so good at lecturing. It's a, it's a skill. I'm, I'm better with sort of. Uh, so for and all I've always found is learning too. Is if it, if it was uh, practical, if I could apply it. I, I understood it and I remembered it. If it wasn't, I didn't. I never remembered it, even if I didn't understand it. It certainly is a good um, plug for what is the traditional way of learning theater. It's an apprenticeship program, right? Like yeah. you can go and learn it all. You can learn about all the tech stuff and yeah. get training on certain systems and you know learn vocabulary and process and everything else from school. But until you actually figure out how you do it in the real world uh, and work with someone who can tell you how they work and start to develop a style like well, that only you only get from apprenticeship. Right? There are so many um, variances and in so many different disparate artists yeah. that have to put their work together in order to create a theater piece. I mean, I, I, I talk about this all the time with students is it's a collaborative art and it's probably the only one that uses so many disparate types of artists and asks them to all come together to do one thing. Yeah. Um, which makes it probably the most imperfect art as well. Um, but it, it becomes a, that skill set of being able to, 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 to not um, be selfish and to share. And, uh, but it's interesting because when you allow yourself to open up, you can actually become more creative that way because it's not about your ego. It's about whether it's right or whether it's right. You know, this is a good idea and let's try it. When I did Frontiers Americanus, I did set, lights, costumes, video. I was a designer, right? I was a production designer. And, uh, and it was a one-man show. So it was Guillermo Verdecchia, Jim Warren, and me, the three amigos, right? And we toured the show. We had numerous iterations of the show. And then we remanded it like 20 years later. And uh, 
I remember at one point, I think it was about the third time we were at, in Winnipeg doing it at Manitoba Theater Center, and we were out drinking cognac, as was our habit after rehearsal. And it was a bit of a love-in, I guess. Um, and it was like, I don't remember if that was your idea or my idea. That design element, I think that was Guillermo's suggestion. And that line reading, I think I suggested that one night when we were in notes. And we couldn't decide who had made, like we'd crossed over into one another's department so much that we no, no longer really made the distinction. And we were just all working together on it. And I had sort of my area that I needed to take care of and they had their area, but they all blended. And that to me is a working relationship. Yeah. That is, it's rare, but it, when it works, that's truly, um, you know, when, when you've kind of done it. And, and, and then, then, then you are, so I like to say this, I'm going to use this analogy. Maybe it's a good thing to end on or whatever. I used to say this to my students. I started thinking about it, collaboration and all that sort of thing. And, how you, you know, that it's not equal, right? The director has more power than anyone else and designers have a certain amount of power versus, uh, you know, production managers tend to be reacting to what the designers asked for, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, so I thought, well, that's a good analogy that for this with students. And I thought, well, that you're not a theater artist. You, together with others, make up one theater artist. So if you think of the theater artist as a person, with organs so you're the brain i'm the heart you're the other person's the lungs this person's the fingers so you don't need all of those skills all at the same time but you do need your fingers at one point and that would be super important and you can't do the job without them but you don't need them all the time so you know there's times when your skill set is going to be more important than other times and that's when you need to step up and be ready and be capable and be trained and be ready to go. And you also need to rely on those other things to keep the blood flowing and the, and the, and the air in the lungs and the brain working and all those things. And it's, it's a simple analogy, I suppose. But it's, I think it's really true that one organ is dependent on the other, and yet they do different things. And yet, all together, they do one thing. That's my analogy for theaters. And I, I think that if you can impart that that's an important thing to impart to students that's what i've always tried to teach students is is the because i don't think i've ever done a show that i could have done it by myself yeah. ever and so people say oh your work was so beautiful or whatever and you go oh you get all puffed up or your ego and you go well actually you know it's not really entirely me yeah. right it's like yeah i obviously had a part of it and i'm proud of it but it's not i mean even if it's the set itself that still went through the director. That still got inspired by the script. That still, you know, like those things came out of somewhere. And they're not just like, you know, springing fully formed from your creative mind. And it's like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Our ideas are shaped by our, the context and our limitations. And very much. And yet those are also sometimes that's where it's born out of. Exactly. Limitations are really great. I personally, I've always done better work when I've had smaller budgets. If I've given an unlimited budget, I, I number one, I almost always go over. Right. What is with that? And, and 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 also, I just can't decide what to do. Whereas if I'm restricted, it's like, oh, okay, yeah. I can only do this. Yeah. So and I can work within that, and I find that easier for me. It, 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 I don't know why, but it, it's easier for me. Yeah, I think I, I agree. All right, uh, we didn't talk about Jim Milan and Crows. I, I didn't do very much work with Jim Milan, of okay. course, but I did High Life. 
High Life, which was fucking great show. Yeah, let's talk about High Life. Carver. Oh, yeah, man. yeah, yeah. Oh man. Oh, here's a great story. I like to tell my students about High Life and Brent Carver. Okay, here's a good one. So, um, High Life is a great show. It's, I don't think it's ever show. I've done a show with four men in it. Uh, that was such a male show, like a very male energy show. And four ex-cons, and it starts off with the guy telling the most disgusting story, like right in the middle of the mid-conversation. He's talking about throwing up on some woman that he's fucking on the floor or something. You know, like it's really gross. It's this, and it shows him to be a real pig. And that's you know, boom, you're into it, right? Randy Houston, right? He's telling this story, and his character's name is Bug, <laughs> and Ron White, God rest his soul, and. um Actually, you know what? Just realizing Crackwalker had Ron White, Randy Houston, yeah. Cheryl. Um, she's dead. But two of them are dead. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting modeling. Um, so this is the story. So we, we're doing um, uh, High Life. And in, in it, there's a scene. Most of it takes place in an apartment. But there's one scene where they sit outside a bank in a car. And it's kind of a red herring scene in terms of set design. Because you got this one scene, the four of them sitting in a car, two in the front, two in the back. How do you stage that easily, make it look like a car? We decided we wouldn't even try to make it look like a car. We did have two seats that would come on, and they were like car seats. And then we had the couch, which just became the bench seat in the back. So we'd bring the car seats on, and they were obviously like captain seats, you know. And they're on a little truck unit. They came on and sat in place. And then we lit it. Originally, Bonnie did the design, and then I took it on the, on the road. We lit it with a, uh, a rectangle of light, hard-focused all the way around it, right? So in, the, in that scene, Brent is freaking out. He has to pee. His character needs to pee. And he's freaking out. He's jonesing. He's all these things. And he's amazing. He's amazing, like what he does to himself. So he'd be sweating. His face would be green. I don't know how he does this. And... Uh, at one point, they're trying, he, they're trying to convince him to distract him so that he doesn't pee. So they, they don't want him to get out of the car, yeah. right? Because they've got guns and stuff. They don't want to get out of the car. And, and so they keep they ask him what's his favorite movie, and they go around talking about their favorite movies and all this sort of thing, and he says, this is the sound of music. And they laugh at him, of course. He, they promise they won't laugh at him. He says, I don't want to tell you, you'll laugh. And they tell them, and they laugh at him. And he pees his pants. And you can tell he's peeing his pants because he's crying and he's peeing his pants. He's humiliated, right? He's, it's an incredible scene, like the way he plays it. It's very funny and it's really sad at the same time. So he comes to me and we were at the Du Maurier or the Ice House. Yeah, what is it called? The End Wave. And it was, so you know the seating there is sort of like um, three balconies or two balconies and it comes down both sides. And even when you do proscenium, you got people down like right on sort of, directly stage right and left up yeah. a level. John Stead was our fight guy. And um, I remember him saying, you know, when you hold the knife, you turn it so it catches the light oh, yeah. and everybody sees it in, uh, you know, the various seats, right? You turn the, the blade really slowly in your hand while you're holding it and it'll catch a reflection and everybody will see the glint on the knife. I remember that one. So this, and along that line, Brent comes up to me after the first preview and he says how am i lit in that scene the scene where he breaks down crying and i said uh you know square from above and some fell in for the face but basically it's that kind of boom right he didn't say anything he just nodded and then i watched the show that night 
So he gets to that point where he's sobbing. And I watched him. He tilted his face up and he panned it very slowly from left to right. Why? So we saw the reflection of that downlight on his tears. And I went, wow. I mean, this is, this is, he's an incredibly um, like uh, sensitive actor, uh, intuitive and instinctual. And yet, that's 100% technique, 100%. And he, he managed to meld those two things together and have them coexist. And I've, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Uh, an artist, that, an actor that can, that can command both those things equally and with such, you know. And he never even told me why he was doing it. You know, he just wanted to know. And then he worked it. And I just thought, okay, that is a perfect example of, you know, working as, as one to do one thing. And because that's not only about him. Yeah. That's incredible. All right. I think we'll stop there. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. That was designer Glenn Davidson talking to me from his home in Toronto in August of 2018. Next time, an interview with the fabulous lighting designer Kevin Fraser. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you do like the show, please support us on patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you rush between each performance at the Toronto Fringe Festival to do every changeover yourself and make sure they start on time before you get your golden donut. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block. Dream with Richard Greenblatt? Yeah. Uh-huh. In 2002? Yes, awesome. at the, in, in High Park. Yeah, and my father died in the middle of it. Oh, my God. Right in the middle of it. Right at tech. Oh. Right at levels, our focus or something like that. That's awful. Yeah, I'll always remember. I, I, I remember very little about the show. Yeah. Actually, I love the design, if I do say so myself. Sure. Um, but uh, I remember uh, um, somebody who I owe, Paul Shaw, Yeah. Uh, who... Um, you know, it could be a real hard ass as a yeah. production manager, a real hard ass. Mm-hmm. Like he was the worst guy to negotiate with, like yeah. the worst, sure. just awful. Um, he was, he stepped up and was really a good person. Yeah. You know, he made me feel like, don't even think about it. Right. You're out of here. Yeah. yeah don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. We're, we gotcha. We yeah. gotcha. We gotcha. So that, that's the kind of stuff I find, you know, really make you remember. Yeah. That quality stuff, as opposed to a show or somebody, how they screwed you on a contract or anything like that. But when it comes down to the human stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a difference, right? For sure.